Hi, I'm Lawrence Krauss, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. This week's episode is with Brian Keating, an experimental astrophysicist and cosmologist and old friend. I've, at, in fact, appeared on his podcast uh, some time ago. Brian has studied for most of his career one of the most interesting bits of data from the early universe, the cosmic microwave background radiation, the afterglow of the Big Bang, in particular was involved in an experiment looking for an imprint in that radiation that would come back from a far earlier time, in fact the very earliest seconds or less of the Big Bang itself during a period called cosmic inflation. If we could measure that signal, it would reveal to us an incredible amount about physics and maybe even about the existence of other universes. Brian and I talked about that, those aspects of physics and physics more generally and his own experiences as a scientist and also his interest in science popularization. It was a fun discussion. I hope you'll enjoy it. You can watch it on our Substack site, Critical Mass. If you subscribe to that site, you can see the ad-free uh, video of the podcast or you can watch it on our YouTube channel or you can listen to it on any channel that allows podcasts to be broadcast. Either way, I hope you'll really enjoy the, the discussion, and I ho also hope you'll consider supporting the podcast through the Origins Project Foundation, which runs the podcast and also other public events and outreach activities. Well, Brian, it's, uh, it's great to be able to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's nice to be here, the Origins Podcast. Yes, and, and, and I appreciate you, you, you talking to me, even though you're recovering from COVID or are now recovered safely from COVID. And yes, that's I'm, I've never been so positively happy to be negative. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's nice you talk us, to us from home, the wonder of, of communication in the modern world. Look, we've, we have chatted before, and it's always fun, and I, and I want to have a chance to talk about some things we haven't had talked about, which is mostly your work and your background. And as you know... This is an origins podcast, so I like to talk about people's origins, and uh, I want to begin with yours because I've known some things about it, but I want to be—I uh, I, want to be able to go into into depth in a way that I hadn't before. You, your father was a well-known mathematician, right? As a, a well-known mathematician, but um, well, I wondered who. But I'm also—I also know that you sort of were disconnected for a bunch of years. When, when your parents got divorced and you later on reconnected. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, I would be happy to find out about that sort of influence because I I guess, I would guess that his influence as, math, as a mathematician affected you later rather than earlier when you were very young. And I wonder what got you interested in science at the beginning. Like what's your mother, what, was your mother a, a scientist? So those are all a bunch of no, questions. No, no, she, she was, yeah, she was brilliant. Uh, she is brilliant. She thankfully is still alive. My, my father, of course, passed away very young, mm -hmm. 69 years old. Mm -hmm. But um, no, my mother didn't give me any scientific, I mean, it's kind of, I'm a scientist despite my father being a scientist and despite my mother being a non-scientist, uh, it was kind of a way to, to teleport me away from the strife that uh, divorced children go through or children of divorced parents go through is very de rigueur in the 1970s as uh as people may know is kind of the hip thing to do uh and uh they were very much uh influential on me my father more at a distance and almost despite you know sometimes Lawrence you can be 
just as get just as much value from a weatherman who's always wrong than one who's always right. Uh, <laughs> although, you know, speaking here in San Diego, it's it's hard to be wrong very yeah, often. It's always yeah, <laughs> it's cloudy in the morning and sunny in the afternoon. But anyway, 72 and sunny. Uh, so, you know, my father was kind of a counterexample and I wanted to be as different as possible. You know, I felt like he had abandoned me and my elder brother at a young age and uh, gone off and done stuff for himself and, and uh, despite his brilliance. So for example, he was a, he was the youngest full professor in Cornell university math department history. He was 27. I think he was a full professor. Mm. Now mathematicians get tenure earlier anyway, but yeah. he was full professor age 27. And, uh, and when I wow. applied to Cornell as an undergraduate, uh, I didn't even mention that you know, my father was had been a professor there, the young age. Yeah, yeah. uh, and so I wanted to succeed on my own merit. Of course, I didn't get in. Uh, neither time did I apply <laughs> that I applied to. Uh, but I went to the best Ivy League school eventually anyway, Brown University. Um, uh, well, we can debate that. But but if it, I was I was not accepted at Cornell, which was my safe school for graduate school. Because my I had two professors of mine as an undergraduate, and they both did their PhDs at Cornell. So I... So I figured, oh well, that's my safe school. I never got I got into MIT instead, but it, but it, but it, it uh, yeah. So it's all kind <laughs> of right. random. Yeah, life works out in a way. But yeah. I ended up, uh, you know, going to Case Western, uh, where you would later become my uh, my incoming department chair as I left, and and that was uh, that was a. A, a wonderful university for me. They were phenomenal professors. It was four to one, you know, teacher to student ratio. Uh, and uh, I was back there a couple of years ago for to speak at homecoming. And I really didn't take as much advantage of that university as I as I as I probably should have. Always thinking about, oh, I should have gone to MIT or or Cornell yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But, but but again, you know, it, it didn't it didn't seem to harm me very much. So I think my father's influence, I really didn't discover. I didn't talk to him from age seven to age 21, wow. 22, when I started to have inklings that, um, you know, maybe there was a virtue to making peace with this, you know, by then older man who, you know, I, I didn't even remember what he looked like. Wow. And uh, and so my brother and I got in touch with him through, you know, these uh, our Jewish grandmothers. Uh, they weren't talking to each other, but they were uh, they had friends that talked to each other down in the Bermuda Triangle of Florida yeah. uh, that I call the Yentonet. And uh, these Jewish grandmothers, grandmothers, bubbies got together and connected me to my father. And one day he called me up wow. at Brown and my dorm room. And he said, this is James Axe. And I said, oh, OK, wow. That's, I recognized the voice instantly. It was pretty funny. And this is oh, uh, 1990. Yeah, it was. Uh, I even though I hadn't really heard his voice, and you know the voice is so powerful, yeah. uh, it's even more powerful than the visual in some ways. And and I I felt this connection. We talked for hours on the phone, and he had moved to Los Angeles and was living outside of L.A. and and invited me and my older brother to come visit him. And uh, and uh, you know one of the first things we did is take a paternity test <laughs> to prove <laughs> that he really was our father. Did he require and, that? Uh, and, he required it. Yeah. And I, I was kind of, I mean, my wow. mother was very insulted. She probably still is to this day. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I was so sure that it would come back, you know, positive, uh, you know, with, with no uncertainty that I was willing to do it just to prove them wrong and, and, yeah. you know, get on with my life. And then by the time we came out there, got the results, it was 99.97%, you know, as he used to say, genetic mm. garbage. And, uh, and so, yeah, so it was pretty, I said, no, well, nobody's perfect, you know, <laughs> uh, but for a long time, I, I couldn't really bring myself to even call him dad. Like I would just, I would say you or, you know, Hey, or, 
Um, it was wow. very hard because I had lived with another man for, you know, 15 years. Yeah, who brought you up? Essentially your father. Yeah, not your yeah. biological father, but your father. Yeah. And, and you know, that's Ray Keating, and that's whose name. He adopted me, and so mm. my brother and I changed names. We changed religions. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, brought, brought up Jewish, and then uh, when they got divorced, my mother remarried an Irish Catholic man with nine brothers and sisters. <laughs> and I converted at the time to being uh, that most Jewish boys would have their bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. I was converted to being a Roman Catholic altar boy in uh, the uh, the Church of St. John and St. Mary's in Chappaqua, yeah, New York. You That was a, that oh, in Chappaqua, New York. Okay, well, you, you were lucky that you missed the bar mitzvah mr stage i think that's a that's a that was a gift having gone through it myself i'm going back lawrence you'll you'll be interested to know so next year i'm going to be 52 and that's the fourth anniversary of my bar mitzvah and i'm going to go to jerusalem and do my bar mitzvah at the wailing wall with my family god willing and that will be a an event for the ages because you know it's it's kind of funny that i i grew up as i said as an altar boy in the catholic yeah. church for a, a few years and then the person that converted me away from Catholicism was uh, was this guy, Galileo, uh, yeah. Galilei. Yeah. And I discovered him even before I discovered you uh, and uh, oh. and and cohorts that made me really question the Catholic Church. And uh, and I don't think it was that sophisticated, to be honest with you, Lawrence. I, I feel like a lot of people go through this phase. And, and you and I talked when you were on yeah. my podcast about uh you know at what level would i accept the refutation of you know right now there's all this brouhaha in, in the popular press that the big bang never happened i don't know if you're yeah. following this but i try but there's this to. guy who's been around since i was a kid uh eric lerner yeah uh, he's not even a you know a scientist really by yeah. by training he has no no formal education but he you know he puts a lot of videos anyway he's saying all this and i was thinking well he's very convincing if you're if you're not very sophisticated a lot of the things that he's saying makes some sense and mm. but when you look deeper you know i was thinking well, maybe he has like a, a you know an understanding of certain topics and people want me to debate him mm. and i always find it you know kind of um almost a waste of time because yeah. you're not going to change the ideas of somebody who already is so committed confirmation bias to want to believe something and you give it oxygen and so I put out a video kind of debunking some of his claims about the mm. JWST findings that supposedly are crisis in cosmology. And but I was thinking, you know, way back when, if I had heard this as a 13 year old, maybe I would have believed it, maybe not. And mm. so I think that's the challenge of, of you know, overcoming staunchly held ideas. And, and that wasn't really your question. But but going back to the influence okay. of people, I think I was always looking for a father figure. And I've been blessed to have people remote, dead, long dead people like Galileo and Einstein, all the way up to people like, uh, you know, the, the modern day people like Barry Barish, we were just speaking about. He's become well, a mentor. You can say me if you want. <laughs> you can say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to ever take the chance that it goes to your head. Lawrence. Yeah. No, I, heaven never forbid. That. Yeah. Heaven forbid. That would never yeah. happen. Barry's a wonderful guy. So, so it's great. Um, well, look, I think. Did you speaking though of father figures, or at least going back? Because um, I want to go back. Um, did you read much? I mean, for me, reading about science was really what turned me on when I was kid. And in fact, I don't know if I've told you in our podcast, but it was actually a book about Galileo that was the yep. one that 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 really turned me on to to think of science as a romantic and and daring activity. Yep. But did you read yeah. much science and popular science when you're? I did. I did. I actually read a lot more science than science fiction, which kind of puts me at strange odds. As you know, I'm the co-director, associate director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for yeah. Human Imagination here yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. UC San Diego, where you've visited me a couple of times. It's, it's nice to, mm -hmm. when you come to town. And 
but I always read the science fact or science nonfiction of Isaac Asimov. He was yeah. really the biggest influence on me as a kid. And so much so that, that uh, I wanted to be like him to write books, to be a professor, to teach, to, to, mm. to, to educate at scale, which I think, you know, you and I both do nowadays. And for me, that kind of blend of the creativity, the poetry, it was only much later that I read Galileo's work as an, from a nonfiction perspective and had the mm. honor, along with Frank Wilczek, your, your friend Frank, mm. and, and Carlo Rovelli and many others, to Fabiola Giannotti, to mm. record the first ever audiobook of Galileo's dialogue. And yeah, that well, changed I, my life. Yeah, I want, I want to get yeah. to Galileo at the very end. But yeah, I mean, the dialogues are amazing. In fact, I've always, I think I told you, I've always required my non physics and non-science students when I teach physics to read some Galileo as we'll talk about but we'll get there yeah. um yeah. Uh, but Galileo you know certainly and by the way Asimov was one of the ones who had a big effect on me his non-fiction books I never yeah. actually ne I never read any of his science fiction yeah because, you know people everyone thinks I'm like a science fiction aficionado because of the physics of Star Trek and right. I did read I read a science fiction of a guy named John Wyndham more than the the, the the other people but um but science fact always it still continues to fascinate me more than science fiction. Um, yeah, I mean, but, Carl Sagan said, you know, is, and I know you're a huge fan of Carl's and I heard your podcast with Jeff Marcy. Uh, yes, absolutely. These long dead books speak to you in your head. And I think now with audiobooks read by authors and you've read mm. your book, um, uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told. I listened to that uh, again last year, the second time. And, um, you know, having the actual voice now, you know, a lot of people say, well, what are you going to leave for your kids? And yeah. I'm like, there's millions of hours literally that that are available. People can watch and so forth. And I feel like, you know, I, I just uh, can't imagine what it have been like to have Carl Sagan or or uh, Isaac Asimov or, you know, even Jane Goodall in her prime to be, mm -hmm. you know, on a podcast. I mean, it's just it's so incredible. And. But I think, yeah, that search for father figures, you know, less, you know, unfortunately, just less so for mother figures is just what was in the reality back then. Now, thankfully, there's, you know, tremendous numbers of good authors on both uh, sides of the gender spectrum. But I do feel like uh, books are are becoming sort of second tier. You know, I wrote my first book, um, one of the marketing people at Norton you know, said, well, who is this for? And I, I started to say, well, for everybody. And they're like, that means nobody. And and like, yeah. and they asked me, well, what's your competition for your books? I said, Lawrence Krauss is now. I said, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a you know, Brian Green or, or yeah. something. And they said, no, you're wrong. It's, it's every cat video ever made on YouTube. Like that's <laughs> your competition. Yeah. Uh, Cause people now it's so digestible. They can just get stuff without even selecting, you know, the, the benefit of TikTok now is that you don't yeah. have to have decision fatigue. You just get this thing fed into your brain. And, and I forbid my kids to watch it um, or these stories and so forth, because it takes no effort, not even the effort of, of listening to an audio book. It's so detrimental to the developing mind. And I don't think I would be a scientist nowadays if I grew up with all the paradoxical choices mm -hmm. that we have. It's just, it's overwhelming. And I think it's ultimately to the intellectual mind, the scholastic mind, I think it's very, very damaging. Well, yeah, I I think that the fact that people don't read or don't read long things, they can digest short little you know tweets or whatever and that's that's the yeah. that is the problem because you know to do anything substantive it requires thinking for more than a minute or two and and that's the training that that's useful in in many ways and i mean that's part of the training of, of, of physics and speaking of that i guess i wanted to you you know okay so you got interested you were sort of interested in science by reading scientists as young and your mother encouraged that as well she she didn't want you to be a doctor or anything like that she was 
She uh, no, not like your. I think your mom wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, right? yeah, no, yeah. Uh, she became a Catholic. She's one, so <laughs> she one of the rare Jewish mothers, you know, who, who wasn't like obsessed with me. But she ended up getting a doctor, and my brother is a lawyer, so you know, she yeah. she got the, lawyer, the Jewish too. mother's yeah. dream. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, no but, I, I think that the really the transformative thing that she did is didn't stand in my way of what I was passionate about, and I was actually pretty motivated. I had a job as a kid. I was stocking shelves in a delicatessen in Dobbs Ferry, New York. And, and mm-hmm. I saved up my money because I really wanted to buy a telescope. And I realized that I, you know, I, I always say like, I'm in no way comparing myself to Galileo, but mm-hmm. the mere fact that you can buy a little telescope like this, and I'm going to go into, you know, someday I'm going to start making my own telescopes mm-hmm. because so many people ask me, what should I get from it? I'm just get any sort of telescope. Do not point it at the sun. And <laughs> anything that you can see is the exact same thing that Galileo saw 400 years ago all the craters on the moon all the phases of venus the ears of saturn as he called them and most importantly the moons of jupiter and lawrence i don't know i mean i don't know if i've ever said this to you but but i don't think there's a way as a scientist in all of science that you can replicate the visceral feeling of discovery that you can when you look through a telescope you can't do it with a with a large hadron collider in your backyard you can't do it looking at you know, with an electron microscope. But if you look through a telescope, you immediately get transformed to the feeling that Galileo had when he looked up. I think that's remarkable. I think it's unparalleled in all of science. It could be. I mean, there's a difference, of course, that, you know, you know the big difference is that Galileo didn't know what he was going to see. Um, but, and, but no, I, you know, I, I, I have a telescope here, which actually I just bought. I had a telescope as a young kid, but I bought a fairly large telescope, which I never, I never bought one when I was living in, Arizona, because uh, they live in the city, or when I lived in Oregon, because you couldn't see the sky. Well, I mean, you could see the sky, but but you couldn't see the stars. But when I moved here, it's just so beautiful. So I knew I'd I'd buy one. And I and I, uh, a neighboring kid who's now just gone to university, uh, our next door neighbor, uh, saw me there, and he he didn't know, he'd never thought about it, and brought a friend down, and I showed him the you know moons of jupiter and also saturn and it was just like an awakening experience for them and but you know the interesting thing is it's it's interesting i first realized this i remember i was on i did some movie about voyager once and and um and there was an i went to ireland i think and 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 uh, where the director was from and um and there was an audience question and i it was only then that i kind of realized something i should have realized before that every time a young person learns something for them it's the first time in the history of the world that's been understood and we you know right. this said we we should treat it always as discovery rather than regurgitation and it, in the sense that it is always brand new but you're absolutely right that in the telescope it's really visceral and I, and it, no matter how he pictures a saturn you see it when you look at it through the telescope and you say it's there it is it, it still um, blows me away every time yeah every time yeah. i i look in a telescope and, and yeah for me I, I started i bought a little marble notebook and i taped the pencil inside of it and i would sketch out the messier objects and oh, and i was doing research you know and i was doing research and i wasn't on this track you know as i said you know growing up with parents divorced you know it's probably yeah. traumatic for me i mean i always i always like you know people are you know one of the, one of my uh, sponsors on my podcast was this online therapy company mm-hmm. i won't say the name of it in case you have the sponsors <laughs> and i was like i never really had therapy you know i'll give it a try but i don't endorse things that i haven't used personally so i started yeah. doing it and i was like well what what is he going to bring up i mean it's so obvious to talk about yeah. you know parents divorce yeah. etc yeah. but really you know i'm i'm in my 50s now or just turned 50 last year and 
And I start thinking, well, you know, like, is it going to be this goodwill hunting moment? You know, I have to like start sobbing over the phone on <laughs> Zoom on this guy that I've never met, you know. And uh, and I, I feel like those are not really, you know, the cathartic moments that the really, you know, the the impactful moments, at least in my life and my career. Mm-hmm. It was these serendipitous things that that really came up and and that discovery and whatever it felt like looking back on it makes sense. I was doing scientific research. I didn't know that's what it was. Yeah. I had idea. There was no internet in 1986, yeah. 87. There was no Google. Uh, so you couldn't look these things. So you had to struggle. You had to actually invest some effort. And for my case, I was like the Sunday New York times had this section, which they no longer do. And it was like mm. the sky at night, basically a Cosmo section. Mm. And you could see these. And I was like, Holy crap. I saw Venus. Like, saw Venus? like I thought you needed to have a spaceship. It was during mm. the Voyager time. Yeah. And uh, that thrill you know, not, it's not for everybody, but, um, but once you know that that, you know, is, is accessible, you can get teleported away from, I think a lot of, uh, of, of earthly concerns. And then it's kind of a rabbit hole that you just want to go down and now it's easier than ever. But I wonder, as I said, I wonder if that's a good thing. Like the fact that my kid, you know, one of my kids is, is obsessed with like perpetual motion machines and, mm-hmm. and he sees something on YouTube and he just gets totally drawn into it. And it's great. And he talks about electron plasmas mm. and and he actually had a good suggestion lawrence i want to get you as a particle physicist he said that the 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 electron really should be called the negatron i, I want to start a movement to call the electron the negatron, negatron. and it's the pro- positive it's, it's probably a little bit late but uh but but it's not <laughs> uh, but it's Old you know it's, it's certain, i think you're, you know if it were logical of course you know if it were logical it would be called the positron because yes. because it was That's ben right. franklin who, who who got it wrong because really it's the carrier of electric charge and that's the one you want to make you want to call positive they just got it wrong right. and 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 we're stuck with it now so tell uh, your son right. tell your son it really should be called the positron and see what he says okay I'll, that'll be really up uh, an <laughs> upheaval for mine, yeah. okay. anyway let's so so your your interest in science got came through astronomy which is a little bit different than me i i had a telescope but i was kind of interested in in lots of things and i most i think i mostly well i I use the telescope part time to look at the sky. Let me put it that way. But um, uh, uh, but what? So in school, did you gravitate to science subjects? Did you have good teachers or? Uh... I, I I did. I went to public schools my whole life. I teach at a public school now. Um, you know that being said, I think you know public schools have changed a lot, at least here in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, but but back then, um, it was wonderful. I would, they had it in the library. They had Scientific American, a sure. once great magazine that featured. Once great. <laughs> Many of your uh, articles and, and expository uh, your statements. Now I, I can't really bring myself to read most of it. Yeah, me too. Um, but but when I looked at um, uh, when I would go to the library and, and really you had to subscribe to these magazines, Sky and Telescope, yeah. Astronomy, uh, and I still subscribe to them to this day. Uh, for me, that was the that was the entree, and then I had to learn about math. And because I think you know my my lack of influence, my mother totally innumerate, and my father just not being in the picture, uh, and my stepfather being really out to uh, you know just a workaholic, alcoholic mm. maybe, and even as as well, mm. um, having to deal with that uh, at home was was a big challenge. And feeling like well, you know, I I wanted to have a uh, an escape. And for me, that escape became taking, you know, taking this telescope out. Now, then I realized I need to learn about math. And I wasn't put on the track to learn about math at that age. I was on the track to just do, you know, to graduate from high school without taking calculus. Wow. And so I had to kind of take on myself to learn trigonometry, pre-calculus and calculus in the span of, you know, only two and a half years. So I could take, 
the AP exam and which I did and did well on and got out of my first, you know, kind of required class at Case Western. So uh, it was really self-motivation, I think, just to learn more. What is parallax? How do we know these stars are that sure. far away? What is redshift? And what can you see through this? And it was around Halley's Comet, the last appearance of Halley's Comet. I really wanted to see that. I didn't think I'd be around for the next appearance and, and still another 50 years, 40 years away. Um, well, so that, those things to me were, and and you're right, the, most people didn't really care. I mean, if if you look at Andromeda through a telescope and you're expecting, you know, like this picture behind me, if you're watching on yeah. YouTube, um, you know, you're you're going to be disappointed. And I think that's, you know, we never should have launched Hubble because it, it makes these <laughs> these pictures too, too accessible. Or JWST should be canceled for many reasons. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think, but but I became kind of like an apologist Lawrence, I was like, well, you see, there is a smudge there. And if you mm. if you use averted vision, mm. you can actually see the equatorial bands of Jupiter. Mm. And people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, it's just a peach colored smudge. Yeah. Mm. But to me, I knew what I was the, the, to the eye that has a brain, as Homer Simpson yeah. would say, yeah. uh, that that was the thing that was so appealing to me, the connecting the hypothesis to an observation, writing in my logbook. And, and these are, you know, $50, $60. You could do that and make potentially an inroad to a career for a young person. Okay, well, this you're a great advertiser for getting a telescope and thinking about these things, but I'm intrigued. I want to know why were you drawn to, well, I guess it was astronomy. Why were you drawn to physics rather than, bi were you, did you ever think of doing biology or anything else, or was it always because of astronomy that, that you wanted to do physics? Well, you remember at Case, there was a professor, Peter Pesch, yeah. and uh, he was a very famous astronomer. Uh, he's still alive. Uh, yeah. I heard some some good news about him recently. He's still working, I think. Anyway, he, um, he was uh, a friend of another astronomer who was a friend of one of my cousins, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this astronomer's name is Jay Pasikoff, who's very famous. He wrote the Menzel uh, Guide with uh, after Menzel died at Harvard. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, they wrote the field guide, Peterson guide to the stars and planets. Yeah. And that was like my Bible. I read that every night, you know, before I do wow. observations. And so I became friends with, with Jay Pasikoff or, or, you know, at least he was friends with my cousin. Yeah. And he said, case has a great program. Go to case. So I went to case and this was about the time when I had worked over the summer. I'd saved up some money working in restaurants in, in Westchester County. And my stepfather got fired. He was unemployed. So we had just enough money to not qualify for financial aid my freshman year. And I was about to get kicked out of Case Western, uh, but wow. for the generosity of, of donors and even the president, Agnar Pitta, who you probably remember. Ag was um, one of the few good they, university presidents I've ever known. And, that, and yeah, few, he, one of the few honorable university presidents I've ever known. Yes. Anyway. Yeah, with, with courage, which is a very yeah. rare trait for university. He, I mean, I, I, anyway, he recruited he, me, so I have a special attraction. Yeah. But anyway. And he, he would meet with me. I was some freshman that yeah, you know had a decent great, GPA, man. but was going to kick. And they and said, well, we have this by the program way. And now. a physicist. He was yeah. also, yeah, he was sorry, go on. That's right. Uh, yeah. So anyway. he ended up saying, well, you did so well in your SATs that if you had applied one year later, we would have given you a full ride. So they mm. ended up, he ended up cobbling together a full ride for me oh, one wow. way or another with some loans and and, and support from a, uh, an, an alumni. Um, and uh, so I ended up still remaining a kid, but I figured oh, I need something practical. Astronomy is not practical. It's too, it's too much fun. Like who's going to pay me to do this? It's like being paid to be an ice cream taster yeah, yeah, sure. or a wizard, you know, one of these roller coaster testers that we, but yeah, by the way, if you ever want to see like the definition of jaded, if you come to San Diego SeaWorld at 830 in the morning, there's a guy who gets paid to ride the, uh, the Atlantis roller coaster, which is like one of the most terrifying roller coasters in the world. This guy has to sit in the front seat all by himself for liability reasons i once brought my binox there with my kids and i zoomed in on his face and he was like this 
<laughs> like going down a 45 degree angle at like 200 miles an hour. Ah, I'll be like freak. This guy's so jaded. He does it every day. Anyway. Well, it's the first I thing you do like, at work. It can't be exciting. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, so I ended up uh, thinking, well, I need something practical. Uh, let me do engineering. So I switched to civil engineering. I hated it. It was terrible. And then that summer, my stepfather, Ray Keating, uh, again, he gave me some great advice. He said, well, why don't you do something that's like a mixture between practicality and philosophical, you know, kind of intrigue that you're interested in. Physics is a good blend between the two. And so oh, I switched my major to physics and I never looked back. And uh, and yeah, so I went well, to when I went to Brown, I was a physics, you know, PH. My, my department is now switching to half astronomy and half physics. But uh, but I've been a physicist my my whole life. Well, you know, I you you indirectly got I think the right route. I I was going to ask in a treat me having been I was a professor. Obviously, I was chair of the physics department, but I was also yeah. in the astronomy department there. And um and Case was one of the few universities that had an undergraduate major in astronomy. That's right. And I tell and when students ask me who will want to be astronomers, and I say do an undergraduate degree in physics because that's the right preparation. So I was really intrigued that you, here's was your interest in astronomy, but you went through physics, which is exactly the right thing to do because that's the right background. It used right. to be, you see, when you, before you were born maybe, but when you're, you're younger than me, but it used to be that astronomy is quite different. It was kind of like botany in the sense that it sort of was labeling things and, 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 and now astronomy has essentially become astrophysics and, and, and merged with, and so the distinction between astronomy and physics is very different. But when I first started, it was, it was really a distinction, and 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 it it was interesting to me because I I became a professor in both departments from the time I taught at Yale and onward. But I never had I never once took an astronomy course in my life, not once. Yeah, but because I, I was, didn't either. I didn't. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm teaching. I teach astronomy. I teach cosmology. Yeah, I never yeah, took these classes. Yeah, I took, yeah physics you know, is the right preparation. Physics. And I, yeah. oh, by the way, I also used to when I was chair of, at Case, I used to tell the potential engineering students because Case is primarily an engineering school. I used to tell them that. You know, I, we created a program in in engineering physics because I used to say that's the best of both worlds because, you know, you get a physics training and you can become an engineer and, and if you really need the job. And, and, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but a large fraction of people who are called engineers in, 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 in industry are actually trained as physicists. So they, they don't. Oh, yeah. That. I would say if you want something soldered right, yeah. you know, the last person you call is an electrical engineer. <laughs> yeah. no, it's, anyway. no, it's the most flexible. I have zero unemployment. I've graduated 18 students over the years and four of them are faculty and not not one of them is unemployed. Uh, and uh, it's the most flexible job. Some of them work for Amazon. It's sure, it's a great training. And, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I have, I have students in all of those. Yeah, so I used to argue when I was recruiting that physics is a great training, but I won't do that recruiting spiel here. But you, anyway, you locked into into the right department, and the physics department at Case was a was a great department. And when I, I was yeah. very pleased to become chair there, and and a long tradition, especially of it, of of spending a lot of its energy in undergraduate education. That that one of the things that I was very proud of when I was there, but it was a tradition that had been created before I was there, is that we uh, generally tried to put, you know, really good teachers, especially at the young, at the earlier levels, uh, 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 and and um, and not always have uh, sort of lecturers teach the big introductory courses. Uh, when I started, there were some, but we moved it away eventually to where where we could get our, our really good faculty, because that's where they should, really should be, is sort of motivating young young people. Anyway, it was nice. You moved, you you graduated there the year I arrived, and so just we sort of passed like ships in the night, but. Um, and then, and then you, as I say, you went on to that that unknown uh, Ivy League university, Brown, I think it's called. Yeah. And um, right. and uh, anyway, but before 
before and then before we get to your physics career, I do you did touch on this interesting conversion. You made two conversions, religious conversions. You went from being a Catholic to being an atheist, and then sort of from being an atheist to being Jewish. And of course, yeah. being Jewish and being an atheist is not inconsistent. Um, but I wanted to. I, I couldn't. I don't want to dwell on this, but I'm intrigued. What caused you? as someone who would, you know, had been influenced by people and whoever they were, and maybe was one of them, but uh, to, to I, I think it's hard to be a scientist and not be an atheist. It, it's not impossible because there are a lot of good, there are a number of good scientists who aren't. Um, but uh, that, and it's never a sort of a catharsis, it's usually a small sort of a, a drift when you begin to realize you don't need the, the, the fairy tales, that the real world is, is, is pretty interesting without them. But, um, why don't you talk about that? Why you decided to sort of um, then, if you wish, adopt Judaism? Do yeah. I mean, I, I again, you know, I think the the revelation, if you like to call it that, although it's not meant in this in this way, yeah. was that I had rejected something as a twelve year old or thirteen year old. And actually, this is the way the syllogism worked for me. Um, I thought I could reject Judaism after rejecting Christianity. In other words, I felt like. Christians are very smart and they're mm. going to know things. And um, and so they must have known what came before them, namely the Old Testament, the Torah, as we call it. And uh, so they must have gone through and reconciled and rectified all the issues and the problems and the flaws and said, we're going to improve it. You know, so Christianity in some sense is, you know, Judaism 2.0. This is my yeah. logic. And perforce, if I can reject Christianity, then, you know, all the more so can I, you know, a fortiori, as they yeah. say, I could re reject Judaism. So I really didn't think about it from the time that I gave up um, Catholicism, which was mainly due to this this absurd treatment of Galileo, which by the 1980s, and in fact, he's never been pardoned formally by the Catholic Church. He was ruled by John Paul, who was a great and, you know, great man, and he ruled that he was correct in 1989, I think it yeah. was in an encyclical, but he'd never forget. I mean, he never pardoned him. So I felt in the 1980s when I, when I was like, well, how can I be adhering to somebody, something that would torture? I thought they tortured him. Little did I know it, yeah. you know, Bernie Madoff would easily <laughs> gladly trade the prison yeah. cell that he had, you know, uh, for, yeah. for the prison cell that, you know, quote unquote Galileo had, which I hosted a conference in his villa in Architetri outside of Florence in 2015 for the 100th centennial of relativity, which of course Galileo started, right? So anyway, it wasn't that bad a place to do your bid. Galileo's daughter had a much harder time, in fact, than Galileo. But anyway, <laughs> yes. yeah. Both of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but how could some, how could I adhere to somebody that tortured this, this person? And of course you go through all the things, well, like, you know, Judaism uh, condones, you know, stoning uh, children and doing this and doing that. Um, but I realized, Lawrence, I really knew nothing about Judaism. I actually knew more about Islam uh, mm -hmm. because it was so prominent in the early, you know, two thousands. Yeah. It was impossible to to not be yeah. affected by it. And I knew a lot about Catholicism, Christianity, because I had converted and been yeah. baptized, confirmed, and altar boy. Yeah. So, but I knew nothing about Judaism. I didn't know how to read Hebrew. I never studied for, but you know, all I knew is mm. that on Hanukkah, I used to remember getting a pair of Husky trousers instead of getting, you know, an, an Atari you know, or Commodore 64, you know, so like my, <laughs> my, my, my Gentile friends. So I felt like it was almost a negative to be associated with Judaism, but I knew nothing about it. And in my twenties, I started to think, well, Judaism sure is playing this big role in an outsized impact on society. And, uh, you know, at least behooves me to learn something about the religion of my birth, even if I will ultimately reject it. But to reject it without any 
um, confrontation as an adult. You know, Einstein used to say that he never asked questions like, what would it happen if I traveled at the speed of light and looked in a mirror uh, to his father when he was five years old? And it was good that he didn't ask his father that question because his father would have told him the wrong answer because yeah. it took Einstein, senior, you know, the junior, <laughs> to actually come up with the right answer. So he said it was a blessing that I never asked my father these big questions. And I feel like for me, the richness of Judaism, you know, when you all you learn is, like you said, this miserable training for your bar mitzvah and getting embarrassed mm. as your voice cracks on the yeah. stage in front of yeah. all your friends and your and your bubby is going to pinch mm. your cheeks too hard. Yeah. And yeah, you might get some money. Those are very superficial. And I felt like there was a depth to even reading, even as an atheist. I think as an atheist, you can say there is wisdom in in traditions that that last for thousands of years. There are conflicts. There are challenges. But I think the the main thing, so Lawrence, like one thing, you know, that that I think is a misconception about Judaism is how much is really present in Judaism in what you and I do, which is cosmology or particle physics. Mm. Uh, so I once looked at the Torah, the Old Testament, mm. and and I looked, how many sentences are there that have anything to do with science in the Torah? Not the Talmud, which is 2,700 pages yeah, long. Yeah, second, yeah, Talmud's but good. in the Torah itself. So there's at most 32 verses that have to mm. do with the first seven days. And by the way, of course, there are things that that make no sense scientifically, like, like the sun was created on the fourth day. Yeah, like yeah. what what is that? But they're not stupid, right? I know you've called them Bronze Age peasants and stuff, but, but yeah. let's just stipulate that there's. Well, they weren't stupid; they were just ignorant. That's a big difference. A well, big of course, difference. but but yeah. ignorant about science uh, is yeah. is one thing. If it's a science book, I would say if I look to a brief history of time, or the physics of Star Trek, if I look to it, like how am I going to raise my kids? Or how am I going to deal with, you know, peacefulness in my home? Mm. Or it's not, you didn't write it for that. I didn't write my books as a guide mm. to how to raise my children or for wisdom that could last presumably for, for some time. And so I start to look, well, what are these things like stoning uh, a kid? That's barbaric. That's, that's, that's disgusting. That's, that's preposterous. How could anybody adhere to this? Yeah. And that's in the old Testament. That's not, that's yep. not some abstract thing that appears. In yeah. The it's right now, there. What was the context? What was the context of that? So I start to look into it. Well, let me let me look through the sources of it. So first of all, Jews are incredibly good at documenting and scholastic research, and they had train of of custody for all these things going mm. back. There's not one recorded instance where a child was ever killed by his parents in all of recorded case law, which is what the Talmud is. Yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why would you have a law that has no purpose that you never did? And I realized even to this day, Lawrence. There are places in the Middle East, in, in certain uh, parts of Africa, where kids are killed and they're killed by their parents. And so it wasn't the parents. The law actually says you will take your kid and you'll bring him to the Sanhedrin, which is the court, and yeah. they will stone the kid. OK, so what did that do? Well, it took the ability to kill children out of parents' hands for the first time. I said, that's pretty interesting. Also, divorce. Divorce was not common. You're being quite Women were chattel, as you know. Right. They yeah. were like chattel, right? They could yeah. be bought and sold as slaves. Yeah. Right. So what did Judaism do? So I have a document hanging in my kitchen, which mm -hmm. is my prenuptial agreement. And it uh -huh. tells all the obligations that I owe my wife. And if uh -huh. I don't give it, she has to be able to be permitted to marry another man. That was never done in the ancient world. In fact, in this very moment, there are people that are that are subject to basically chattel slavery and so forth. And I start to ask, of course, you still realize that the, the, the fact that there's not a similar document that where you'd be permitted. I mean, the fact that she'd be permitted. I'll, it, many people would say those words are offensive today. But in any case, well, well but but the alternative was I kill her. Right. No, if no, I know. To... I know you're absolutely right. It may. At the, I mean, I think that's the important point. 
we live in the society nowadays we're fixated on the fact that people gee people behave badly uh, 50 years ago 100 years ago a thousand years ago but but you're absolutely right compared to the alternative it was much better and you can't hold you know you can't judge people by modern standards uh a hundred a century ago right. or a millennia and, ago and that's I that's like something i wish young people understood now but they don't right yeah. no they they want to say that the world started spinning you know the day that they were born and all these people that came before them if they had one fault and i'd like to say well do you eat meat you know because in a hundred years you could be subject to the exact same you know barack obama eats meat right so yeah. there's a picture of him eating yeah. five guys hamburgers yeah. right yeah so like is he going to be canceled someday he could be and so I feel like that's very dangerous to say that. So when 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 I was a kid and maybe be, even before there was a don't trust anyone over 30. Yeah, yeah I trust is. a book that's 30 centuries old. Like I remember reading I read, read uh, I don't know if you've ever reread Stephen Hawking's books. Of course, you know everything in it. But but he talks about inflation as being proven M theory mm. being proven. And it's it's a vindication of all his mm. ideas with Hartle. It's all nonsense. And I Said, I said to myself, he really would be happy with his books being relevant a hundred years from now. Yeah. And I would be terrified if the science that you and I do now and talk about in our works is still like cutting edge and has never been overthrown. And that would be very depressing to me. And so yeah. I look at, um, I didn't close the loop on the on this, like just the accounting. So there's 30 verses in the, out of 30,000 mm. verses in the entire Old Testament, plausibly could say is related to science in some way or another, mm. or cosmology even, or, or Adam and Eve, whatever. So that's 0.1%, right? So one in a thousand. So if you looked at a book and it said, you know, great NBA stars, and you started reading through that book and 999 of the thousand pages were about like the Oliver North trial. And, yeah. and this book is not titled like it's not yeah. correct. Like this is idiotic. Like it's, I was misled. Mm -hmm. So I think there there is a natural and people talk about science and religion and conflict. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's kind of stupid. I mean, honestly, there are two completely there are useful things that you can glean. I don't think you can glean any wisdom necessarily from, you know, from the Feynman lab. I think you can gain a oh, tremendous I, I amount think of knowledge. Oh, I think you can gain some wisdom. I think we disagree. In fact, I would I would argue get get as much wisdom if you read it carefully and critically as you might from the Bible. But anyway, well, look at you, Lawrence. I I, I was very touched when you when you wrote about your mother. Mm -hmm. Your mother um, was a tremendous influence on you. You don't write so much about your father. Uh, certainly, I wrote a lot more about my father. Mm -hmm. But I know that the fifth commandment um, in this you know schema of things is honor your honor your parents. Honor your father actually says uh, it says fear your mother and honor your father because it's kind of the natural inclination like kids kind I of was certainly afraid of my mother. Oh. There's no, no doubt yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the word is is kavod. It means to make heavy. It uh -huh. means to like be in fear and awe and terror. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that uh, the man who treated me the way that my father treated me, if he necessarily deserved the the filial devotion that I showed to him in his waning moments of his life, which was strenuous for me and for my older brother. I don't think that I would have done that if if I didn't feel like there was an injunction in the commandment. Remember, it says, mm. honor your mother and your father so that your days will be long on this earth. Now, what does that mean? That you're going to live longer? I don't think so. I think it means your days will be filled with more life. And I think you honoring your mother the way that you did and you do posthumously I think your life is improved from that. I think it's inarguable. I think that you being the, the son, now you can say you didn't need the Bible, but I think, again, you came from a rich tradition of, uh, of, of, of you know, people in our religion. I don't think our religion is better. People argue, oh, the number of Nobel Prize winners. I think that's nonsense. I think it's mm -hmm. racist. 
But there is a tradition related Mm -hmm. to argumentation. As I said, when you were on my podcast, the word Israel means fights against God. It's the exact opposite of Islam. (laughs) So I feel like that's our tradition. And for me, at least, maybe maybe I'm not as sophisticated as you or, or something, but I felt like having a code where you're saying from a very early age, putting things in the mouth of your children and teaching to them in a way that they can understand a value system that has a preponderance, in my estimation, of good deeds and goodness on earth, I think it's a good thing. So I use it mainly to answer a long-winded way of answering your question. I view it as practical. It has made my life yeah. better to have a code at least to measure and calibrate against as we do as scientists. You need some standard Mm -hmm. to compare against unless you're making it up yourself. I didn't feel I was sophisticated enough to make up my own moral code for my life and my children. So it does provide a useful calibration standpoint. Sure. Look, look, my point is that, you know, whatever floats your boat, if you know, you take it as if, as if religion helps, if religion helps someone and as long as it doesn't get in the way and lead them to irrational and seemingly evil behavior, I have no problem with it. I, 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 I also especially have no problem with it if people realize, hey, this is allegory, and as you do, and 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 I mean, there is a real conflict between science and religion in the sense that when when there are scientific statements, they're generally wrong in the Bible, but that's okay. You're when you your point, you you weren't the first person to point out the Bible isn't a scientific document. Saint Augustine certainly did, but right. um, but uh, so you know, if you, if it works for you, my my whole point, however, is and. and uh, I'm sure it's my whole point, but one of the key ideas I like to get across for people is that is you know just like Sam Harris seems to think you need to do psychedelics to to, to understand the world, which is nonsense. You don't if it works for you, fine, and if it's productive and leads to good behavior, great. But there, are, you don't need it. You don't need it to be right. moral. You don't need it to, to lead a good life. You don't need it to come to moral conclusions. And that's the biggest problem with religion is that, is that it's kind of usurped or monopolized morality, that it's viewed in a modern society. If you're not religious, yeah. you're not I just don't want to conflate, moral. you know, like fatwas and, and a yeah. course of uh, Islamist, you know. And Judaism, as you may know, it's forbidden to proselytize. I mean, that's one, and it was forbidden from the Romans by force, but nowadays it's not, for, you know, like, we're not forbidden to, I can, you know, reconvert you back to Judaism. I could do that and, and then be perfectly legal in America. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, but we don't do it. In fact, you're supposed to turn away converts. A lot of converts, women convert to marry Jewish men and vice versa, uh, although well, it's a little more rare. Well, let's, you're well, actually supposed to be turned away. You're actually yeah. supposed to be turned I away. Think you're, I think you're proselytizing right now, so we'll go to it. <laughs> We'll go. We'll go to another area. Anyway, it was nice. It was interesting to see what your what your rationale is. And I, you know, my brother happens to be a very religious Jew. So, so right. these conversations are not uh, not new to me. Uh, uh, oh. I, I just, uh, I just, I, I, I don't quite under. The, you talked about the wisdom of ancient books, and there is some wisdom. But there's, but I, but most ancient books, I, I tend to think we've actually progressed, even in our wisdom, compared to back then. And therefore, I tend to. Um, Although I, I, I'm an avid student of history and I love ancient history and I used to read it. And by the way, when I was younger, I read all the religious books because I just read everything. But, but, uh, but I, don't, I don't think we have to. I think it's, again, a, a worry when people say the wisdom of the ancients because they seem to think that, that, that it's all there. But I think that we've discovered a lot of wisdom in the Well, I, I look, here, here's just one last example, yeah, and, okay. and you'll cut me off if I'm proselytizing. In the Bible, there's no positive stories of family dynamics in the entire book of Genesis. There's not yeah. one story of a loving husband and a yeah. wife. Now, why is that? What, I mean, shouldn't 
most most religious texts start off with the godly nature of these of their progenitors, right? Even even in in, in Christianity, right? I mean, well, not God, in ancient right? Roman and Greek history. They have great gods because those gods were just behaved like humans, and they were pretty vicious. Right. They would mean. they would have all these foibles, and <laughs> yeah. So what happened to teach? Well, most families, as as Tolstoy said, right? All unhappy families are are you know miserable in their own ways. Yeah. Um, but I think it's 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 part of the human condition that you didn't have to be you could achieve greatness if your brothers tried to kill you. If your sons tried to deceive you, these are all, these are things that happen. And yeah. I look at the Tower of Babel story now, Lawrence. I see so many parallel. I mean, I'm not literal, but like with with people rewriting language and using language as weapons, physical weapons. And what is the reason that they say they wanted to make a name for themselves? They want to take down God. Okay, so that's a mad allegory, but they want to do it to make a name for. They want to build a tower out of out of uh, composite materials so that they can make a name and then what does god do he dis disperses them and confuses them and their language is dispersed mm -hmm. so now they're going to be talking in gobbledygook i see so much of that as relevant today at least from my perspective on a college campus there's so much new speak going on right now i don't think even the bible comes close to covering <laughs> well there you go you just point out to another reason why god was not was is no one to be to be worshipped because God wanted to get in the way of of knowledge um, and make a name for humans to make a name for themselves, in my opinion. But in any case, um, okay. so look, there you can extract wisdom, and there I extract wisdom in Hans Christian, some of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. Wherever you get it, it's fine. Whatever literature, or if you, it, whatever you it, look, and and the Bible is literature, and it reflects a perception as its time. And I read it when I read it. I, I, I read it. I think. Well, I was curious more than knowledgeable, but I, if I were going to read it again, it's sort of a reflection of, of its time. And, and therefore, I find it fascinating to see what humans were thinking about, just like, as I said, just like I, I, I happen to have uh, Plutarch's lives down here, and I, like, I love to read them every now and then, because seeing the, the, both the continuity of thought and the difference in thought is fascinating for me so anyway the, i think no it is I, I, the last thing i would say lawrence and i, I know you do, i i want to move on too but but i i think it would be fascinating because i do see you uh, i i know you call yourself a militant atheist but oh, no i don't is... not anymore i call myself well, an you, ap okay, apathy used to yeah yeah okay, yeah i used, used to because my friends yeah but i think now i'm more because i'm an apathyist because i don't think god's relevant to anything but anyway right. go on okay. But no, I think there is a virtue in, um, so there's something called the, the Havrusa or partner method of studying where two people sit down and we just go back and forth. And these commentaries go back thousands of years. Like yeah. you said, we're not going to be the first ones, but yeah. we're going to approach it from a, from a specific point of view. And, and I have had, uh, you know, kind of, at least from a purely, you can take it purely literally, literarily, but mm. going through stories, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, these are obviously very rich and impactful on Western civilization. But I even think that they'd be interesting to you, not not just from like, oh, I'm going to study like sociology of, of the world and world history, but actually going through it and saying like, well, what does it mean when, when the serpent like says, did God really say you couldn't touch the tree? Oh, no, no, no. Eve says, oh, no. And then the woman that you gave me mm. like told me to eat the tree. No, she didn't do that like and and obviously they knew that there were these contradictions i mean they're not stupid as you have said yeah. they're not stupid they just knew what their time they're ignorant of scientific okay fine i'm just saying i would love someday to do this havrusa talmudic this uh description because i think it would enrich as it as it enriched my life not trying to convert or proselytize yeah. but i do think it would be to see the modern resonances i think it would be it would be fun it would sure. at least be fun that's all i, can uh, I think it'd be fun but my point is it'd be fun with almost any ancient book or any modern book to do the same thing so there you go i mean i 
I would okay. love to talk about Cash 22 with you, which I still think is a much more motivating and much more had a book that had much more impact on me than the Bible. But in any case, okay. Um, okay. Uh, uh, but no, look, this was an interesting and I appreciate your your discussion uh, in this regard. And um, and but let's go from the ridiculous to the sublime um, and and talk about physics. And and I want to. And so you you went to do your PhD in physics, but you you started your PhDs in the cosmic the cosmic microwave background, which has been the area of research for, for your whole career. What was that just an accident of who happened to be a supervisor, a good supervisor, Peter Timby, I guess at, at, at Brown or, or did you, did you think about Did that? I mean, it clearly it merged your interests in the sense that it was physics, but it was applied to astronomy yeah. in a sense. So what, what caused you to get interested in the CMB? Cosmic well, I microwave want- background, I should say for those. Yeah. 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 So I always wanted to like tinker and like build stuff. I had an old Volkswagen, you know, I used to take it apart and put it back together. Uh, So I always like working with my hands. I knew I probably didn't get started earlier enough in my math education um, uh, to, to really go into theoretical physics, although it has always interested me and I continue to try to maintain at least a conversant nature with theory, although I don't do theories, new theories, novel theories, but I, I pride myself that I, I know a lot more about theory than many of my experimental colleagues. And um, I want to do something, you know, impactful. And that was right after, and when I started graduate school, it was right after Kobe uh, released their results in 1992. Yeah. Yeah. It was a year after that. And my, um, uh, and I started at Brown uh, with a young, there was a young professor there, just come from Princeton, where a lot of Kobe had been designed by mm-hmm. David Wilkinson, who was my yeah. grand advisor, it was his PhD advisor. And we, um, and we hit it off. He was very young and energetic. And he had made the first proposal to go after the polarization of the microwave background. People hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it was early so on. What, and no one was talking about it at the time. At least few people That's were. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I got connected with him and he also was, um, somehow he got connected with a, a student of the great uh, Yakov Zeldovich. It was a Russian mm-hmm. scientist mm-hmm. who had emigrated to the UK named Alexander mm-hmm. Polnarev. And Polnarev had made some of the first predictions about what gravitational waves would do to the cosmic microwave background's polarization. So this is way before we even discovered that mm. the CMB was definitively yeah. polarized. Yeah. And so I thought this was so exciting. And it was before we really had an inkling that inflation, the primordial epoch of hyper-accelerated expansion, could impact the cosmic microwave background with a particular class of, of um, polarization uh, categorizes now called B-mode polarization. Yeah. So um, it was long before that, but I found it so fascinating that you could actually measure with a radio telescope that we could build on the roof of the Barris and Holly building um, at Brown, and we could actually set some limits or maybe even make a detection. And lo and behold, this became my thesis project, looking for the large angular scale polarization of the microwave background. I even spent a, a couple of months with with Alexander Polnarev in, in Queen Mary, and we we did the first modern treatment of what the expectation would be for the polarization of the microwave background in 1995. And, uh, and we made mm. predictions, what we'd see if there were gravitational waves, if there was reionization, which is, which was still, you know, kind of un- unexpected at that time. And so it was fascinating to me that you could use a small radio telescope, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar project and make a deep impact, especially right after Kobe had done this, you know, really, really incredible work detecting for the very first time using the exact same technology that I was using, except mine was polarized, highly polarized, mm-hmm. sensitive, we could maybe make a detection maybe as big as what Kobe uh, had discovered. And of course, we're still waiting uh, in some sense to make those detections. And But the stakes have grown ever higher in this field, 
just kind of paying out like a like a Stockholm slot machine with Nobel prizes. Um, yeah. And that I wondered how long it would take you to get. I wondered how long it would take to get the word Nobel Prize because you're fixing. Yeah, right. Well, but yeah, we'll talk about that later. I, think, I, do, I keep trying to. I keep trying to get you over this fixation with that. But anyway, um, uh, um, let's. I want to parse this more carefully because this, uh, to me, I, I this is a obviously a, uh, an important area. It's obviously personally important to me, and and it's it's kind of fascinating to me when I think about that you having left uh, Case right around that time, and I. When I moved to Case, I I had just uh, I'd been fascinated by Kobe. In fact, had been tried when I taught at Yale to get Yale to hire George Smoot, but I couldn't convince him to do it. But um, mm -hmm. and and ran a big actually ran the first workshop that brought together theorists and experimentalists on the cosmic microwave background when I was at Yale. They didn't used to talk to each other. And then that was the workshop where they decided <laughs> to start doing things in multiple moments and, and developing a term. You know, the question is, what could you measure? See, no measurements have been right. made. So what could you measure that you could interpret in terms of theory? And it was a fascinating meeting. And, and, and Dick Bond was there. And, 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 uh, and, and so for me, as a, as a, you know, wasn't my main area, but I, the need to bring theorists and experimentalists together was so ripe because the minute you did get a measurement, it didn't mean anything unless you could, unless you could sort of say how you could compare things with theory. And it was fascinating to watch. And, and I, obviously I was interested in inflation. So we, we just around then wrote papers, but never thinking of polarization, but how to distinguish inflation from other things. And I worked on a, with my student Martin White at the time, uh, a bu bunch of things, but I want to take back because I want to, I, what I was working on is irrelevant. I want to. I want people to be able to understand what the significance of this is. So we have to take people back, and I want to parse it a little more carefully because polarization, um, the experiments you're doing, you were doing, and and are still involved in, could be obviously incredibly important. As you know, I I was actually on your bicycle experiment. You, as you know, I was asked to write the companion sort of paper talking about its significance. So I want to get people to where where bicep was and what it did and what it didn't do and why uh, and why yeah. it was interesting. So let's step back a little bit. So the causing microwave background is a, as as I'm sure I've talked about in this and uh, before, but it's probably worth talking about again. Is a signal of of what the universe looked like when it was about three hundred thousand years old. It's a it's the most direct bit of data that as Again, I've also said in other people, but it turned cosmology from an art into a science. When I was um, back when I taught it, at, when you were an undergraduate, when I was at Case and and even that and 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 at Yale before that, was convinced you'd never be able to measure any fundamental cosmological quantities that astrophysics would get in the way. And the cosmic microwave background changed that because it's a direct signal. So why don't you talk a little bit about it, yeah. you, the experimentalist? Yeah, so that, I think that is the important thing. You know, there, there people don't really realize that there you can do experiments in cosmology because we typically think of experiments as having a control and then modifying some variable and then you get the impact of the output. Uh, but of course, with even astronomical objects, any you can't change the temperature of the sun very easily mm. or change the, the cross section of the neutrons inside of the sun. Mm. So, um, so how do you do an experiment? And especially when you only have one thing, or at least when I was a kid, we thought there was only one universe. Uh, that's what uni means, right? Yeah. So um, the conception of the CMB is uh, it was was fascinating to me that you could build an instrument 
effectively a radio telescope that sees the microwave wavelength radiation, which is the fossil relic heat, the oldest heat or radiation in the universe. That's the leftover, you know, schmutz that comes from the fusion of the lightest elements in the periodic table and lasted for at least 371,000 years when the Earth, when the universe was basically a plasma of protons and electrons and none of my favorite croutons uh, floating <laughs> around. But it was very, very simple physics, which is very useful for uh, for physicists to make predictions A plasma fourth state of matter sometimes it's called and uh and it's, it's it's properties are very very simple and easy to predict in a certain sense acting under the force of gravity with a certain amount of dark matter and people don't re usually realize that dark matter's you know first evidence that was really quantitative as lawrence said as a science was was coming from the fluctuations in the cmb and their magnitude not not only from rotation curves of galaxies so this very simple ingredients dark matter couple two different types of ordinary matter and photons, that's all you need to make uh, to make this leftover signal, which was detected by Penzias and Wilson, 1965, uh, serendipitously. They weren't looking for it. They found it by accident. And uh, and those discoveries, I claim, are the purest and most important in scientific history. Uh, and that was certainly one of them. Uh, another one was dark energy, which you, of course, were intimately involved with, um, at least in the theoretical side of things. But anyway... Um, so this plasma is very simple. So you want to mine, scientists are simple-minded people. We want to mine as much as we can from as little input information as possible and make as many predictions about what you'd see. So um, these fluctuations also um, can imprint. When light interacts with matter, it can become polarized, which means that it'll have a preferential axis of, of orientation or oscillation. Waves of electromagnetic character have a polarization which is the plane of oscillation so um if you're watching this on, on youtube oh. i've got a polarizer here it's reflecting my camera as partial i've got another one here and i can rotate them at right angles to each other and one will completely obscure what the other one is transmitting and it will go through uh, alternating cycles every 90 degrees there's 90 degrees it becomes completely opaque and then it goes another 90 degrees 180 it goes back to being transparent that is the sine qua non of polarization. And it's what allows us to build effectively polarizing sunglasses, uh, but for microwaves. Yeah. And they allow us to look into the CMB and see the subtle imprint of the interaction of light with matter. So the, the river behind you is has a glare because there's sunlight striking it and it's reflecting some of the polarization and it's, a, and it's absorbing some of the polarization as well. That's why when you go out on the river, you bring polarized sunglasses. When I go fishing, I have polarized. Yeah. So you can see under the water. Yeah. Yeah. So that removes the glare, which now mm -hmm. your eye has more sensitive contrast and it can see into the water. That's exactly why we use polarized sunglasses. So what's the lesson? Polarization is a tracer of the scattering of unpolarized light, in this case from the sun hitting, hitting the uh, river, off of matter. In that case, the water, the dielectric material water behind you. The same thing can happen in a plasma in the early universe. And instead of tracing the uh, distribution of where the sun is and how bright the sun is, it's tracing the fundamental composition of the matter, the electrons, the protons, and the, uh, the dark matter, and the properties of potentially other forms of radiation, in this case, gravitational waves, which could be suffusing the early universe at the same time 
that the CMB has produced. That's what we're looking for. Those yeah, telltale you know, interactions. And and what and for me and to add, I, that was a beautiful description, and and it's an incredibly important probe. And the fact that you can do it still amazes me. I'm always amazed yeah. by what experimentalists and observers can do, especially since I usually underestimate them. Um, it yeah. just seems so difficult. But uh, but one of the, but for me as a theorist, what was most interesting was the not just the fact that you know if Paul. Astrophysics involves a lot of dirty stuff, and yeah, sure, the light can interact with matter, and you learn about you learn a great deal about astrophysical environments. But as a as a, someone who was a particle physicist and was sort of interested in fundamental things, what amazed me early on was that it could not just end up being polarized, but it could start out being polarized because it could have been created in a way that um, uh, because of 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 properties of what happened in the early universe with inflation. And in fact, I don't know if I ever talked about this, but you know, the first paper, I, because my student Martin and I were, White, White and I were thinking about these things, about how you could probe stuff. When Kobe first came out, Kobe, as you know, measured actually what we call the quadrupole anisotropy, that is sort of the, there's, there's north, south, east, and west, and you could can sort of compare the east, west anisotropy, the microwave background with the north, south, if you want to think of it that way. And and ha ha having already been thinking about gravitational waves, the paper we wrote showed at the time that you could explain the entire Kobe signal as as a quadruple signal from gravitational waves, and and we worked it out what the what the scale of inflation would be, and it was what the scale of inflation we thought you know was was reasonable at the time, and and it and it's funny because up to that point no one I think had been thinking about whether the gravitational waves could give a signal on the microwave background. But you know it could, but because gravitational waves are are what are called basically quadrupole waves, they are they they there's two things they can do. They can imprint directly a quadrupole anisotropy, or, and so that's what we looked at. Or the other alternative is they can produce a polarization signal that reflects that quadrupole anisotropy. And it took a while right. later when people said, "Hey, maybe you could try and measure that directly and see gravitational waves from the beginning of time," which I think is what. You had the bicep experiment that you eventually became involved yeah. in was aimed to aim to do. It, it was not so much to look at the scattering of light off matter, but to try and look for these primordial modes, which would be the first really direct signature of something that happened at almost at the beginning of time. And that's, that's for right. me yeah. the most exciting thing. And the, and and because light like or gravitational wave, any form of radiation, as as you know, but for your listeners and my listeners, they'll be tuning into this. <laughs> as the universe expands, all wavelengths and all uh, forms of radiation dilute as a very steep power of the expansion or scale factor, the fourth power. They they expand their number density decreases as the universe doubles in size. The volume goes up by eight. So their number density goes down by eight. So that's three powers of this of the expansion, but also their wavelength gets lengthened and therefore their energy goes down by another power of the scale factor. So it actually dilutes as the fourth power. That means if you're trying to measure these waves of gravity from the earliest epoch of the universe's history called inflation, if inflation exists, and there's a huge debate right now, it's getting resuscitated and getting, maybe we'll get into that, uh, alternatives to inflation. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> that that expansion factor would be a trillion times, a thousand to the fourth power harder to measure today. So I started to realize in early 2000, along with uh, your late friend and my great mentor, Andrew Lang, another father figure in my life. So this is a story of, you know, father figures is maybe the, the right title for this episode. So he came into my life at a very propitious time for me. 
that he believed in me. He was at Caltech, a wonderkind. And you, and you he was, a, yeah, wonderkind. You, you were a postdoc there that, at that time. So he was, was a postdoc he was for a, him. Yeah. Yeah, I'd been fired from my first postdoc at Stanford University, or I was working uh, for Sarah Church, uh, who was a professor there. I like to say Galileo and I both got fired by the church. Uh, but but she did me a huge solid favor by getting me in touch with her former postdoc mentors, Andrew Lang, and I accepted the job offer before the words came out of his mouth. And, uh, and I realized how privileged I was to get to work with him. And this is right after the boomerang experiment, yeah. uh, which, which you wrote about yeah. um, many universe from nothing and, and other uh, projects you've worked on. And his, you know, he was basically short track for a Nobel Prize. In fact, his his wife, uh, his ex-wife, uh, widow, uh, won the Nobel Prize in 2018 for in chemistry. For, in yeah. chemistry. Um, uh, but for to, the chance to work with this great mentor who had just you know come off the spectacular achievement along with Paolo Di Bernardis and my yeah. colleague Paul Richards, um, to, to measure the fluctuations, the anisotropy in the microwave background. Uh, definitively, you know, after uh, my colleague Lyman Page and, and Amber Miller and Mark Devlin had measured it with the TOCO experiment, they had had hints and uh, Boomerang and Maxima came out. Mm. There's a revolution in the spring of 2020, of 2000, rather, 22 years ago. And uh, and then to get a job offer to work with him was just spectacular. And he and David Baltimore, who is the president at Caltech, another president with, mm. with Vision, mm -hmm. um, decided that they would back this idea that I had come up with um, on the tennis courts with my uh, colleague, Jamie Bob. Um, and that was to build a refracting telescope, not unlike this glass refracting telescope mm. here, except one that had, instead of retinal cells attached to it, superconducting bolometers or, or semiconductor bolometers, depending on the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And we built this experiment called BICEP, which is just a 30 centimeter diameter primary uh, aperture lens. And we took it down to the South Pole where um, uh, where we had uh, had a base and we've had a base there for 65 years or so um, at the very bottom of the world, which happens to be the driest, highest continent uh, on Earth. And why is that important? Well, in the atmosphere, there are water molecules over every part of the Earth. Uh, and water is a very efficient absorber of microwaves, as anyone who's ever heated something up yeah. knows uh, in an oven. So you'd like to be in space, but space costs a hundred or a thousand times more expensive than doing an equivalent experiment on the ground. And with polarization, Lawrence, you can do an experiment on the ground almost as well as you can from space. In some ways, better because you can't launch a our current experiment called the Simons Observatory has a six meter diameter primary mirror, which is bigger than the JWST. Mm -hmm. So you can, and that had to be origami unfolded in space. Yeah. We couldn't do yeah. that for less than tens of billions of dollars. We can do it in Chile for a mere hundred million dollars. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so that's quite exciting. So there are things you can do on earth that you can't do in space. And the penalty you pay is you get excess emission from our atmosphere. That's unpolarized, thankfully, but uh, it makes the experiment take longer. But our, our my colleagues at Princeton and Penn and Berkeley are so exquisitely ingenious at making detectors that we can basically carpet uh, a six meter diameter cryostat filled with detectors at 0.1 degree above absolute zero. And we believe we can go after these signals with unprecedented accuracy uh, in just the next two years. We get first light in April of 2024. Okay. Well, it, and, and uh, the fact that you, you know, you're at the right place and, and, and that, and that uh, uh, Andrew uh, sub, uh, was interested in, your, in the idea of, 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 polarization which you know again you were at the right place you'd done that as a as a as a gra as a graduate student uh and and trying and 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 you know bicep for people who aren't 
weren't around. And it, it, one of the most exciting moments was when I heard the rumors and then I got contacted by one of the heads of Bicep to read the paper before it came out so that I could write a companion paper for the, for the American Physical Society for associated with Physical Review. Was this amazing, for me, one have been, was an amazing, remarkable discovery and the greatest surprise that, that it claimed to measure these primordial waves from inflation, which would change everything. It would be the first direct observable of what happened at the beginning of time. And it was incredibly exciting. And it was unveiled in an incredibly exciting way. And it's gotten a lot of bad press as if they did something wrong. But I still don't, I think they were pretty careful about, they just didn't, they had no, it was, it was not that they, that, that they misquoted what, what they did. It was that they weren't aware of a, of a source of noise and nor did they expect there to be a, at least maybe you can correct me, but as far as I can tell, nor did anyone necessarily expect there to be noise that could mimic the signal that they saw. And it was well, only yeah. later that, 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 w- so why don't you take, take us through that yeah. unfortunate episode? And I don't mean unfortunate. In my opinion, they did everything right, except they just didn't realize that there was another source of. Yeah, we, did, we didn't make a blunder. So, so, you know, I was involved. So what happened was I invented bicep one, which we yeah. later called bicep yeah. one. And it was yeah. an acronym that said for background imager of cosmic extragalactic polarization. And just like your iPhone, every couple of years, you upgrade the number of megapixels and has yeah. and so yeah. forth. And so we upgraded it from 49 detectors to 256 detectors by making transition from the detectors that were made of little semiconductor yeah. chips up into superconducting chips. And these superconducting chips are um, not more sensitive, but they're easier to fabricate. They're all what's called lithographed, like in an Intel or Apple uh, semiconductor fabrication. They can all be made in a planar array. And so they're functionally uh, as sensitive, but they can be mass produced. And because you win, not as the number of detectors, but as the square root of the number of detectors, if you you quadruple the number of detectors, you only reduce the sensitivity or improve it by a factor of two. So we we went from 49, call it 50 to 250. So we had a factor of square root of five improvement by making what was called bicep two. Everything else was the same. Same telescope optics, same cryogenics, same location, same observing patch on the sky. Uh, and we had known from a very long time, and this was Andrew's philosophy, Andrew Lang, that we would observe until we saw something. And then once we saw something, we'd go back and see what it was. And bicep two had an Achilles heel, which is that it only observed at one frequency. And that's fine if you only have one unknown, which is the CMB itself. Or if you can convince yourself that the CMB is the only signal that you're seeing. As Mm -hmm. soon as you add in another signal, be it contamination from the atmosphere, say, uh, which we could rule out, or from the galaxy that we're inhabiting, we are peering out through a galaxy that's a bubbling, in Lawrence Krauss's words, a bubbling bitch's brew of <laughs> protons, psych, uh, electrons, synchrotron radiation, dust particles, and everything else. And by the way, Lawrence, I want to give a special offer to your podcast listeners. <laughs> if they subscribe to uh, my mailing list, which is briankeating.com, I will send them, if they're in the US, I'm sorry, I can't send it to dangerous locations like Canada. Yeah. But if you'll subscribe, I will send you a, the villain of my book, which is this little piece of space schmutz, which okay, is not okay. focusing. Okay. It's a meteorite. Okay. okay. This is an honest okay. to goodness iron yeah. nickel meteorite, which I have acquired the old fashioned way by eBay. It? <laughs> but I will uh, <laughs> delivered by gravity and the U.S. 
postal service. Uh, I will send you the villain that covers the dust jacket of my book, losing a Nobel prize. Mm -hmm. And this was the contaminant. This is the actual signal that we saw. So we saw the impact of trillions and trillions of tons of microscopic grains of mostly um, uh, magnetized dust particles, which are the result of a failed star or exploded star in our galaxy. So it was an astrophysical signal. It was not a cosmological signal. It does not represent the primordial gravitational wave signal that we were looking for because it emits at much higher temperature. These grains of dust are 10 times hotter than the CMB, which means that they're 10 to the fourth times hotter in terms of radiation emissivity than the CMB. So we were doomed unless we had a way of removing both the dust and measuring the cosmic signals. And then we could subtract the dust only signal from the dust plus cosmic signal and we'd be left with the cosmic signal. Now, the failure that I think the team had is that we only went to esteemed readers like you we didn't actually solicit the and i wasn't involved with this this is john yeah. kovac yeah I, yeah I interacted mark, with the people at harvard john kovac mm -hmm. that's right and so they were interviewed and mark kaminkowski was at the press yeah. conference there wasn't a single member of an experimental team and there were many that would have been happy to look at it and there was huge rivalries and i can yeah. understand but i wasn't involved with that by the time andrew died i as a, as and he took his own life he died by suicide as they yeah. say uh, just a few months, Lawrence, I don't know if you remember, it was a few months after Bicep 2 was fielded. So he never got to see, and maybe, maybe not, things could have been different. Some say it could have been. But his philosophy was we would keep studying until we could say for sure what it was. But he never thought we'd see anything, let alone a signal representing as energetic an epoch of inflation that we claimed on March 17, 2014, to have witnessed. So again, the, we, we didn't make, and there were many of us who knew, in fact, we we tried to get as much data from that was publicly available, including a famous example where we scraped the, a PDF slide that, they, that the Planck team had put on their website. Yeah, yeah. I'm not intending it for any quantitative research. We quoted that in the first paper, which, by the way, was submitted um, to PRL, PhysRev Letters, one of the most prestigious journals, without, and it wasn't refereed by the time of the uh, of the press conference. So there were a lot of things we could have done different. And why were we doing that? In my opinion, we were worried about getting scooped. Yeah. We had been told by people like George of Stadio and, and others on the Planck team that this was well within their reach. If we could see it, a billion euro project like Planck could have seen it as well. So these leadership, which I wasn't a member of, decided we're going to go forward. We're going to have a press conference. We're going to put the paper on the archive and people can uh, investigate it. And almost immediately, there started to be questions of all different types, some legitimate, some not that we had made a mistake, not a blunder, not leaving the lens cap on or not plugging in the fiber optic cable and thinking we saw a faster than light neutrino. There are many, and in fact, the biggest proof of that, Lawrence, is that the experiment has gone through two more generations after BICEP2, still going right yeah. now. Yeah. And in fact, is currently the world leader in limits, not yeah. measurements, but limits on the microwave backgrounds intensity of beam mode polarization. And it's going to be a while before myself and my teammates on Simon's Observatory come anywhere close to what the BICEP team, which I'm no longer involved with, by the way. Um, I'm still friendly with the leaders, yeah. but but I'm not uh, I'm 100 uh, percent dedicated to the Simon's Observatory right now. So we have long held the climb to get to where they are. But effectively, what was measured so far, we can't say with any confidence that we have any evidence for inflationary gravitational waves, which makes 
some people in the theoretical community quite happy because they don't believe inflation actually occurred. Well, you know, it, it's first of all, let's let let me parse it as a, as a theorist first. It's in, I mean, I watched it from a different perspective. Let me say there was another there was another first of all. Yeah, the, the, no one doubts. I mean, the signal that you claim to see was a signal. It just wasn't a signal of what you thought it was. I think it's fair to say as a theorist, but also it was an unlucky circumstance because it was there could have been other directions that, that your experiment could have looked at where the dust signal would have been much, much smaller. It was an unfortunate circumstance that that you happen to look in a direction where the dust was larger. And I'm not I think it's a priori until the, your competition, the Planck uh, satellite measured what they did. I think it, many people would have thought that maybe the dust hadn't been as significant. So I think it was not an unreasonable expectation that dust wasn't going to be a problem. At least that's my perspective in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. My, my, one of my students picked this patch based on existing evidence from WMAP uh, back in the BICEP-1 era yeah. that this was the least contaminated patch we could look at. But fundamentally, the Achilles heel was that we only had one free yeah, and you could internally. To whereas, whereas Planck could do more. But the but the other thing, by the way, and this may be new to you because you weren't you're watching for distance, but it's another. So yeah you rush to announce because you're worried you're going to be scooped it's part of the sociology of modern science the interesting bit of sociology that i don't know if i've ever talked about but it's another bit of sociology was the journal rushing because i remember getting contacted by i was actually not john kovacs initially who contacted me it was the physical review letters who contacted me and said hey we've got this you know this discovery paper we'd like you to write a companion paper to explain it and they were so excited by, you know, it could have been submitted to nature. It could have been submitted to anywhere else. They wanted to push it very hard. And in fact, I think it was the first, uh, I do believe it was probably the first Fizzrew of Letters paper that violated the four page limit. Yeah. They allowed it yeah. to be as long as possible. And I was just shocked, but it was because they were so excited that they were going to have what they thought of as a Nobel Prize winning discovery in That's in right. their journal as opposed to another journal. And therefore, they they uh, they pushed it and, right. and, and into, as very much as as well as anyone else, which is another unfortunate characteristic, I guess, about the modern sociology of things is that journals are competing against each other, just like experimentalists are. And they wanted That's to right. promote it. And that, as I say, that's how I first found out about it. And they were willing to make it arbitrarily uh, long paper. The physical it's called letters because it used to be required to have to do four pages. And as someone right. who used to publish in that journal a lot since I was a graduate student, the, always the hard part was you, you used to have to, there were three requirements, timely, important, and also, you know, short. And the hard part right. was often short and, um, and, and getting things into, into four. And so it's very jealous to see that you guys could have as long as you wanted. But That's in any right. case, it was not a, it was not an unrealistic expectation and it was unfortunate, but, Indeed, it turned out to be a signal of something other than, than, than what you've seen. And then, and then the question is, can you push the limits down? And BICEP has done it. And I have to say that one of the, again, as a theorist, one of the smoking guns that made people worried is that the signal was about as large that you claimed to see, was it about as large as it, you could possibly imagine a signal being, whereas you might have expected uh, inflation which produces these primordial modes. In fact, that's why it's such a good, inflation is basically the only producer of these kind of modes. Inflation can produce, explain many other things about the observed universe, and it does, 
but you know, it could have, it, 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 there are other things that might, but well, yeah, I mean, even before the paper was, was put on the archive that, you know, Monday and Tuesday of uh, 2014, there were, you know, 300 papers about, oh, this is evidence for string gas cosmology yeah, yeah, yeah. by, you know, my former teacher, Robert Brandenburger, all the way Katie mm. Freeze. This is evidence mm. for, for, you know, power law inflation. Mm. And, uh, but I mean, I think you're maybe overestimating the creativity of your fellow theorists. Oh, no, no, they can, only, can, yeah. no, no, but what I'm saying, it's the only first principles. I mean, it's a generic feature of inflation that you'd look for this yeah. and, and, That's right. and you and can measure the components, it. You know, and, and the thing that I like about this, this test, and, and I'm very good friends with the arch, you know, kind of rival theory to, uh, to this, which is goes by the name of now cyclic or bouncing cosmologies. I wouldn't call it a rival. Um, the, I think that's, well, an, I think that's a, that's unfair to the word rival, but anyway, go on. It's, it's well, another, it's are... another theory, which is held by about four physicists, as opposed to maybe the one that's held by 20,000 or so anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to appeal to authority, right? I mean, yeah, no, I want to appeal to it. But Bible, it's, Lawrence, you know, no, no, but the difference is, the difference is, and I, and I've talked to Roger Penrose and Alaguth about this, is that one relies on known, on, on well-established physics, and one relies on extrapolating what we know, and it's 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 so one makes definitive predictions based on physics that you can that you can trust, and the other one requires you to say, well, okay, maybe this happens, and maybe this happens. But anyway, go on. Right, right. I think the virtue, there is a virtue. Well, first of all, let me say two things. Sociologically, it's good when there are rivals. And sure. I think to say, yeah, I mean, I, I personally agree about Roger's theory. I think I think the the modern bouncing or cosmological models, that there is a virtue, of course, that these things avoid singularities. And I think the mm. the failure and the dream of, of what I'm doing, my job depends on it, as Upton Sinclair would say, uh, and, and, and might make me prone to want to accept uh, the inflation occurring uh, in younger, more frivolous days. And, and now I think mm. I've gotten a little more grizzled about it. But to, to say that you have a rival that predicts the opposite of what this theory predicts yeah. is extremely valuable because you 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 kill so many different uh, competitors if you make this one. That's the definition of a crisp measurement. Now, mm. where I also make um, you know fellow traveling with with the alternatives is is this multiverse you know issue. And that I don't know if you're aware of this, but I mean, it's almost become like Holocaust denial or and in fact, people have used this this term multiverse deniers <laughs> to talk about those that are skeptical or, or, or find difficulty in this notion, which we should probably explain for the listeners might be so com concomitant with inflation in Alan Guth's mind and in, in Andre Linde's mind and, and, and even in the uh, competitors is that the multiverse, this chaotic runaway kind of profligate universe is going to be a feature of inflationary universes. It's almost impossible not to have, uh, you have to suppress multiverse phenomena. You create and many this, different, and then just, just let me parse it for people. Yeah. I mean, people, we've yeah. talked about multiverse in this podcast before, but for people who haven't heard of that, the multiverse in this case is simply regions that are causally disconnected. They're so far apart that they can never communicate and it's possible the laws of physics could be different in each one. And inflation generically predicts, and it, it, inflation is generically eternal, and it says most of space is actually very different than the universe we see. And within that very different space, other universes could be being born or dying. And if you wait long enough, uh, there'll be ultra, ultimately an infinite number because it'll go on forever. So that's the idea of a well, multiverse. So there are different versions of multiverses, but that's right, the there's most sensible many, kind of right. multiverse. So just regions that we can never see and which... It's possible in inflation 
um, that where there are seeds of new universes, the laws of physics could be different in those different seeds. Sorry, go on. And my question to you, because uh, I have you on the line, yeah. is why why would it only be the laws of physics? In other words, why wouldn't you know modus tollens not hold in uh universe you know 442 next door to ours in other words why is only restricted it seems pretty arbitrary to say well only the speed of light would be different or only the newton's constant would be different could the could the laws of logic or even math be be different in another universe in the multiverse uh paradigm well of course asking that we only have math as a language but 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 the nice thing about inflation is because it isn't hand-waving in that sense is that um, it tells you specifically the kind of different possibilities that exist in different multiverses, it, it, in different universes. It tells you that each universe is describable by the same physical theory and how it relaxes in different ways will lead to different physical constants. But once you give up, you know, you might, you might ask, well, is quantum mechanics generic to all right. of them? And, and then the answer is, well, if it isn't, then the whole used quantum mechanics to calculate it. So if it isn't, then the calculation doesn't make sense. So, so right. as a theorist, you it's like the, you work with what you have. If you're you, you're drunk, you won't get under the light. And 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 so this allows real calculations to be done and could be compared to experiment. And it predicts a certain subset of possibilities. Not anything is possible, which unfortunately, I, I just read someone say that they were quantum mechanics allows anything to be possible. It doesn't. And and quite importantly, it doesn't. And so what's what's nice is, it, in fact, that's one of the virtues of inflation. It 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 explains precisely the kind of differences that can happen, which might, if the multiverse is real, allow you to probe for those differences in one ways or another. So I so that's what I like about inflation. It's it's quite restrictive in the sense of what it allows. I mean, it still very allows a lot of possibilities. But, and but is there but, an easy way to understand why, say, if the if the landscape you know, which is an allied concomitant mm. description that some say is is relevant, pertinent to inflation. Mm. So when they talk about this 10 to the 500 different vacuum states, is it clear to you or can you explain to me how could it manifest as a change in the speed of light? Like if I change the vacuum state here, it's unme immeasurable, right? And it's not something I, we have access to the absolute value of the vacuum or ground state. So how is it that changing the ground state in universe 42 again how does that couple to the speed of light, the well, vacuum state? It, well, it it does because the ground state um, determines the um, the relevant forces that are relevant at, at at low energies, okay. And the speed of light is determined by two fundamental constants in nature: the strength of magnetism, the strength strength of electricity. And it, it and it's because at low energies that that uh, electromagnetism manifests a, as a force because the photon is massless. But you could imagine a vacuum which electromagnetism might not be the, the you know the sole um uh low energy force and then and then the relationship between electricity and magnetism would be different and that would that would produce a different speed of light so it's just precisely the fact that those fundamental constants are reflected in what forces are manifest at low energies and that's a property of the vacuum and different vacua would allow different forces to potentially be manifest. And in fact, it would make the masses of particles different as well as it. In fact, most importantly, you could imagine a vacuum where the light isn't massless, which of course would be a very different world. Um, but you could certainly imagine a vacuum where, where, where the photon is not massless. And that, and that would be, of course, then the photon wouldn't have the speed of light and it'd be very different laws of physics. So that's precisely the relationship between the vacuum and, 
and 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 the speed of light. No, it's good. I was going to ask you to ask me questions, so this is a good. Yeah. But well, right, well, I, well, now that since you're since you're asking, you wrote a paper with with Wilczek, um, which I think you won the Gravity oh. Prize about uh, yeah, I, I about remember. quantum mechanics and uh, and the B, B mode, the gravitational wave imprint that I study and we claim yeah. detection of. Yeah. Um, and the 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 challenge I always have is. When I think quantum, I mean, what's the most, I'm an experiment. I'm just a mm. simple, humble experimentalist, right, Lawrence? Yeah. So I think of the double slit experiment. Like, yeah. I would want that to be kind of the, again, the sine qua non of quantum gravity. I yeah. often hear that if we, not only if we detect, you know, uh, B modes, will we have detected the inflationary epoch and the multiverse, but it'll be the first evidence for quantum gravity. Well, that's what um, we, but we demonstrated. Mm-hmm. But if I observe right now, I'm seeing these photons and let's say, yeah. I, you know, I, I have a I have a Michelson interferometer done at Case mm. Western. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I measure the wavelength um, and I have a classical wave. And that's all that these waves are when they imprint the CMB at 371,000 yeah. years post Big Bang. Yeah. So how is that evidence for quantum nature of, of, yeah. of gravitons? It's, it's, that's why it was so surprising to us. And I was so excited about it when I first kind of recognized it. But the, the simple argument is that in, it turns out that in order for infla- inflation, all everything we see, galaxies are classical objects, but, but you know that they come in inflation from originally quantum fluctuations. Yeah. And it turns out that what we're able to show is that, so, so you know, lumps of matter are very classical, but they originated as quantum fluctuations in inflation. And what we're able to show is that if and only if there were quantum fluctuations in the gravitational field, would you produce a remnant classical uh, uh, um, distortion in space and time? Just like, so, and we showed basically if quantum mechanics wasn't true, namely if, if electrons didn't interfere with other electrons, which would happen if Planck's constant went to zero, then if Planck's constant went to zero, there will be no gravitational wave spectrum from inflation. Basically, that's the, what we're able to show mathematically. Uh-huh. And so we basically uh-huh. are able to show in, in a very, actually in the best of all possible ways, I showed it quite in a complicated mathematical calculation. But then one of the things that Frank <laughs> with, with, did was to show, okay, using what we call dimensional analysis, you could arrive at the same result. But basically on a very fundamental level, if you took this thing called Planck's constant, which went to zero, then the amplitude of those waves would go to zero as a as, zero. as the square of Close. Planck's constant it turns out it's a square of Planck's constant so so right so it was, it's almost so, analogous to the Planck's derivation the black body formula yeah yeah exactly it's a, yeah exactly it's a, it's just as analogous and it would be nice if uh-huh. people thought of it that well, way what's now. so interesting to me about this field so i i kind of feel as an experimentalist i should have long shots and I should have, you know, base hits. Uh, I should have, you know, grand slams, swing for the fences, but mm. also get some points on the board. So in this field, what's been so delightful to me is to know that you can measure these effects, but there are guaranteed signals. So the inflation is not guaranteed at all. There's no yeah. matter from from God or you know Gaia. In fact, or I'd have to say, generally, I would expect, and I, you know, that's why I always admire experimentalists. They can spend 20 years of their life on something that I think is a long shot. Generically, I would say it's quite likely that wh- while I think ju- inflation is the best game in town, it's also quite likely you'll never see the signal you're looking for. Yeah, it could be, right. It could yeah. be inflation didn't take place. It could well, be inflation like, took place at too low an energy scale. Generically, it's, you know, in order for you to be able to see it, it's got to be up near the highest level. And it's quite possible that inflation, 
we all know that if inflation was an order of magnitude lower, then, you, then you're not going to see it. I'm thinking this yeah. generation, probably and, why you're alive. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I think what's been so exciting for me is that, you know, my colleagues in the field have uh, and some, you know, I have to take some credit myself for making this, you know, more prominent in the eyes of experimentalists. And I see a lot of resonance between what's happening in the current state of the CMB uh, and where I was back in 2001 when I first kicked around these ideas for BICEP. And that has to do with measuring what's called Lorentz invariance violation, which doesn't really get that much attention. There's uh, Levi. Hello, Levi. No, it's Levi. actually Levi's little sister. This is, this is Oh, Tasha. that's his baby sister. What's her name? What's her Ta name? Cohen? Tasha. Tasha. And she's, Tasha. Uh, no, no, it's not. They're that religious component is that, and Tasha's 15 years old. She was my mother's <laughs> tribe daughter. Tribe of, 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 of Krauss. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. So um, what's interesting to me is that we are able to measure departures from fundamental symmetries using the exact same, not like I have to build another detector. Yeah. And what's so interesting to me is to look at my colleagues and they're almost apologetic, like, oh, we're only searching for one number. You know, it's yeah. kind of like we're searching for the tensor to scalar ratio. And if we mm -hmm. detect it, that's great. And yeah. I'm like, you guys, we're doing so much more than that. And yeah. any, you know, I was just talking to, I won't say which experimental, but it's an experimentalist that can only do one, like, one number. I mean, literally it's like a mass of a particle or yeah. some, you know, transition yeah. or resonance. And they have tens of millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe. I'm not crying poverty because the foundation, Heising Simons and the Simons Fund have been very generous to us. But um, they're, they are really looking for one number and it may not exist and it may uh, be a, a you know kind of a fool's errand. For us, we not only are capable of measuring you know it, uh, these amplitude of primordial perturbations, but we're capable of measuring things like the mass of the neutrino, which people have not been able to measure on Earth. We have an upper limit and we have a lower limit, but we have no detection, right? So with the CMB type experiments in collaboration with, with optical surveys and so forth, mm. we are going to be able to measure for the first time, detect the mass of neutrinos because we know the lower limit is uh, is sufficiently large that we have the sensitivity to make a multi-sigma, multi-many-sigma uh, uh, confidence level detection of that measurement. So that's one thing we can do in experimental cosmic microwave background mm -hmm. science. We're also measuring the properties of dark energy via how these galaxies and clusters of galaxies, how do they evolve? What's their density on the yeah. sky as a function of redshift? Again, we can measure things like the Hubble parameter. And as you know, there's a there's a, a so-called tension or anxiety, uh, as Steven Weinberg used to say, physics thrives on on controversy. Luckily, there's no crises in cosmology today. Of course, that was in 1987. Um, so there's a crisis in cosmology uh, from the Hubble tension violently disagreeing at five sigma between CMB and optical measurements. Then we have the opportunity to measure what I think is probably maybe even more interesting, see if you agree or not, which is, does the universe obey Lorentz invariance? So not Lorentz invariance, but Lorentz invariance, which is the statement that physics doesn't give a crap about where you are, who you are, when you are, uh, what you're made of. The laws of physics shouldn't depend on on any of those properties. And we only have really tight limits from solar system scales and so forth. And it turns out the polarization of light is a very, very, almost the optimal ideal tool to measure things like parity violation, preferred axes in space mm -hmm. and so forth. So I actually tease my colleagues and say, I'd, if, if God gave me the ability to measure only one thing, the tensor to scalar ratio or the violation of these fundamental symmetry, CP violation, I would take the latter because that would really upend physics. We're always talking about, well, we want to see, we want to be surprised. That would be the ultimate surprise, wouldn't it? If the universe doesn't obey Lorentz invariance symmetry. 
Well, you know, it's it's it, of course it would be the ultimate surprise. It's it it will, but it, it, for that reason, but but it's fascinating to try and it's important to be able to detect it. And I, you know, I've written papers on on yeah. on, on ways to try and probe the, those kind of violations of something called the equivalence principle. But but um, what's wonderful is I you actually took me through. My, I, I I wanted to get away from bicep, and I want to say what's what's next. What might you what might you be able to do? And I wanted to ask you about the. And you've sort of a list. You've listed a whole bunch of the scientific goals of why this field remains relevant and interesting, even if you can't measure in inflation. But one one of the things I wanted to ask you first: tell me about the Simons array. And yeah, um, yeah first tell me briefly about that. Yeah. So the Simons array is a precursor. Uh, to the Simons Observatory. The Simons Observatory is a $100 million class project. Both of these projects are funded by the Simons Foundation. The first was proposed in 2012, so it's coming up on 10 years, and it's three telescopes. Each one is three and a half meters in diameter at the uh, Atacama Desert site where we operate for the past 11 years now. And that is uh, at 17,200 feet above sea level in what was known as the driest desert on earth, the highest desert where the highest construction project on earth effectively that's continually being in operation. We have to build the roads. We have to build the diesel plants that provide electrical power generation capability. We have to have safety managers on site. We have cranes and we have all sorts of, it's a real honest to goodness, concrete pouring uh, construction site with uh, you come down there, you need a hard hat. Um, and so that's a precursor that uses uh, 20,000 detectors. The next generation is called the Simons Observatory, which is going to be an array of four telescopes, three refracting telescopes, not unlike BICEP, but much more capable, much bigger, and also crucially alleviating putting the Achilles heel guard on. We are measuring three frequencies or two frequencies simultaneously in each of three different telescopes. Mm -hmm. So we can measure the CMB and the dust and eventually synchrotron radiation, which is a much lower frequency yeah. manifestation of galactic electron acceleration. And, um, and then we have a six meter diameter telescope, which can do the very fine scale arc minute scale, one thirtieth the diameter of the full moon scale mapping of about 50% of the sky. The South Pole is great, and it was the ideal location in many ways to do what we were doing back in the early 2000s, but you could only at most see half of the sky uh, because the sky is basically gyrating underneath the South Polar cap, and so you only have access to one hemisphere of the sky. From the South Pole, or from the Chilean site, we can see almost 80% of the sky uh, because of uh, the, its location 20 degrees south of the, of the, um, uh, of the equator. So... Um, it is in some ways a, a better site from what uh, our perspective in, in some ways than bicep. Of course, my feeling is we need at least two flowers to bloom. Mm -hmm. We need, no one's going to believe bicep. <laughs> and I used to say this again, if bicep tomorrow comes out and asks you to write another yeah. op-ed, Lawrence, I, I would yeah. think twice. I, yeah. I would think twice if Simon's observatory asked yeah. you to write a, yeah. an op-ed, right? Because you need to have confirmation. That sure. is the lesson not only of bicep two, but of almost every experiment um, to date. And I think- Well, it's, no, it's, you know, it's the fundamental lesson of science is that you need confirmation. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and, and we had said that in the paper as well. So I'm, yeah. not, I'm not casting aspersions on my former colleagues, but the, the bottom line is this experiment will have the capability to do um, even far beyond what bicep did. It has more detectors, more sensitive detectors. Um, and the ultimate prize the, the community is looking at 
is a billion dollar experiment, which has the, the most winsome, delightful name in history called CMB stage four experiment, uh, which is uh, a department of energy slash department, uh, national science foundation project um, that could be as much as a billion dollars. And, and you as a theorist might know this, but, but not, but uh, anytime you hear a number from the experimentalist, always double it. If you want to actually operate the experiment for a decade, it, yeah. it costs mm -hmm. about 10% of construction costs to operate. So never believe this. Oh, it only costs $10 billion to build the web telescope. Yeah. That's to build it and throw it away. If you actually want to use it, it's going to cost another 10 billion bucks, uh, but that's okay. That so, used to be 10 billion used to be a lot of money, but that was the old day. I know mm -hmm. we start throwing around billions mm -hmm. and it starts mm -hmm. to add up. So this project is, yeah, it's due for completion on Jim Simon's uh, 86th birthday in April of 2024. And uh, I was just talking to him this morning and he is uh, more excited than ever. We just got the um, first accepted the factor at the factory, these telescope, the large aperture telescope, the six meter diameter telescope. There's a link on my website to it scanning around and it's built in Germany. We have the three small aperture telescope platforms are in Chile. I'm going down in a couple months to uh, start setting them up and getting ready for our first light, which we'll get first light next year. And then we'll get science quality data the year after in time for his uh, 86th birthday bash. Well, look, you know, there, I know you have to go in a few minutes. And so because I have a, a lot of things I want to cover. So I'm going to be picking on I want to ask you about the CMB for supernova. But instead, I wanted to hit another topic, which is because I have you here which is kind of unique, and I hope you don't mind talking about it. Um, and and it, it goes back to the beginning, which is your father, Jim Max, okay? My, uh, Jim Simons, by the way, as you know, has been on my podcast, and I've known him for a long time, and yeah. I have great respect for him. Um, he became very wealthy as a mathematician, and one of the reasons he became wealthy, I think, is because he was also uh, recruited really good people like Jim Max. Um, and so um, uh, there's it, it's not... It's not ran, It's not a an accident that that that, in, in, that you're involved in the Simon's ob, uh, Observatory, because of course Jim Max was worked was yeah. worked with Jim Simon's to and and to make a lot of money, and and that's fine, but I want to ask you. And so it's great if you can leverage that that relationship. That's wonderful. It's good for science and 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 good for you, but also good for science. So I don't want to explore that aspect of your relationship, but I do want to talk about the fact that we're seeing. Um, how you feel about the modern sort of patrons of science that we're that we're um, which which is an example of this is called the Simons Observatory. It's not called the NSF Observatory or right. some name of some old you know NSF official like JWST or you know a NASA official. It's Simons because Simons is providing the money and and Simons you know has a tremendous amount of money, which is wonderful, and he's using it for good causes. But we're seeing that more and more that scientists are turning to patrons because those patrons seem to have more disposable income than the U.S. government. And I'm somewhat wondering, do you think it's a good thing or that, that, yeah. that we're being driven to that or bad? So I, you have a personal experience with it. So I yeah. thought maybe we'd end up talking about that. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can certainly. So with the Simons Foundation, they've always had an interesting relationship with the federal government in that they have the ability to act as a private organization without some of the fetters yeah. of the you know government kind of bureaucracy. That said, they work very closely with the government. So the, the current president of the Simons Foundation, as you know, Jim retired. Yeah. yeah. So he's playing golf uh, all yeah. the time now. Uh, but he uh, he retired. So David Spurgle mm -hmm. uh, is now the president of Simons Foundation. And David Spurgle is an eminent astrophysicist, NAS member, 
um, incredible contributions throughout cosmology, WMAP, uh, dark so energy. Cool. He led the Flatiron Institute, CCA. He was um, a student, and we is... wrote one of his first papers together with me. Anyway, go on. Oh, I didn't know. And he, oh, yeah, okay. I was a postdoc. I was at Harvard when he was a student there. Yeah, go on. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're right. Um, so he's uh, and and so he didn't choose, you know, uh, somebody from any one of the other uh, computational branches that he works in or he's interested. He didn't choose a mathematician. He didn't choose. So yes, th this is a big project. Now the Simons Foundation gives away, I believe, over three hundred million dollars per year. Yeah. Um. So he's taken an incredible and. It's it's only in the basic sciences and autism. Yeah. Uh, and those are, you know, areas, of course, that the government plays a huge role in. And I think they'd be more than happy to only do autism or only do math mm -hmm. or, or what have you. Um, but they see a need and an ability to agilely take advantage of, of talent without so many different fetters. So, for example, Lawrence. Um, two years ago, you may remember, there was a Black Lives Matter protest throughout the world. Yeah. And in particular, in it hit us in science. So we were dealing with COVID. We had a cohort of young individuals who, um, you know, didn't have any outlet, were protesting social justice, Black Lives Matter. And meanwhile, um, we were the scientists and we wanted to react. But wh what are we going to do? We're going to we're going to like change the policing in Minneapolis. Like, what, what the hell am I going to do? But. What I can do is I'm a scientist and I can mentor people. I'm very good at that. I love to educate and I think I have some abilities uh, to do mm -hmm. so. Uh, my colleagues, David Spurgle and Stefan Alexander, who is the president of mm -hmm. the National Society of Black Physicists, we came to the Simons Foundation. We said, we have some discretionary funds here in UC San Diego, where I'm the director of the project office. We're going to use some of those funds to do internships for kids from black colleges, historically black universities, mm -hmm. to come to places like UC San Diego virtually or the Simons Foundation. Back then it was COVID, mm -hmm. so they couldn't be in person. They did. We did mentorship. You know, we have not been able to do this through the NSF yet. We've been trying for a couple of years now. I'm actually trying to work with the National Society of Hispanic Physicists mm -hmm. to replicate this thing. And it has been kind of um, uh, not I don't want to say copied, but but we've influenced places like the uh, Event Horizon Telescope mm -hmm. to also partner with the National Society of Black Physicists. The Simons Foundation, if they didn't do that. There were 30 or 40 kids who each wouldn't have received $5,000 for the summer, mm. written papers, gotten to yeah. graduate school. I've got a graduate student who's coming this year. She's from this program. These are things that the government, as wonderful as the government is, are too sclerotic to actually implement in an effective, agile, nimble fashion that the foundation has done. And so they've they've contributed a lot of things, high risk, high reward. I think what we're doing still qualifies in that way. And I think that they become a model for it. And I think they're tiny compared to the government. I mean, 300 million sounds like a lot, but uh, compared to the, you know, 300 billion that was just forgiven for student loans in America. It's small compared to what the government spends on many things, but not that small compared to what the government spends on fundamental science. It's comparable. And, and, and it's kind of interesting to me. No, I just look, I, and I, and I think, you know, you, you've described how useful the, the, the Simons foundation is in many ways. And I think you're absolutely right. I'm not opposed. You know, I was involved in in, a, in, a, in another program, Breakthrough Start, one of the breakthrough programs funded by a Russian billionaire looking. To, and specifically because I thought these are programs where I don't think the public should be paying for it. I think they're so speculative that it's yeah. why not waste someone's private money? Now, the programs you're in are, are not that way. They're the kind of things government can fund as well. But but I guess I want in the interest of, you know, I return to the James Axe axis. I want to return to the Galileo axis in some sense. Where are we becoming? So Galileo was able to do what he did because he had rich patrons, right? And 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 
and it, it was good for science. It was a good, it was good for, you know, it worked out pretty well. Yeah. And so do you think, uh, you know, some people wonder or worry about the fact that the, these projects are going to be ter- determined, what's being done is determined by the whim of certain ultra, ultra rich people. Yeah. And, 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 and so I was going to say, is it a bad thing or a good thing? And, and, you know, I can see arguments on both sides, but I, you know, it worked for Galileo. Maybe what's wrong with these people who have a lot of money spending some of it on science. And if it's their own personal interest, well, that's their prerogative. Yeah. I, I joke in my book, uh, uh, I, I say, you know, Galileo in his time, he named the discoveries after his patrons, you know, he called mm-hmm. the moons, the Medician moons. Yeah. And nowadays, what do we call them? The Galilean moon. So yeah. I think it's going to work out for scientists just the same, but in all honesty, I think there is, um, I think, I think the, the, you know, public funding, I mean, the, the price that it's come to and thinking purely of scientists right now, I have an 8% chance applying for a National Science Foundation grant yeah. out the door of getting it. And that's with with a lot of support and, and yeah. overhead at the university. Once I get that money, uh, Lawrence, as you know, my university kindly takes 61% of that yeah. uh, to support the, uh, the, the, the philosophy. I'll use your favorite department, the philosophy department. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of my best friends are philosophers. So. Yeah. Anyway. You wouldn't want your daughter uh, to marry uh, one. Anyway, go that's on. That's right. <laughs> um, so there, there's a tremendous burden on scientists. And this is totally absent from my role as a yeah, teacher, sure. as an administrator, as a committee chairman, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so much waste. Now, when the, the Simons Foundation, yes, I had to write a 20-page proposal. I have daily meetings on, on stewardship, accountability. They, they do run it. And ultimately, the thing that tickles me is Jim doesn't care what we discover. It's so interesting. He actually, Lawrence, prefers the cyclic models, as you may have gotten into yeah. on your podcast with him, but he actually prefers the non-inflation because he doesn't believe that time can start. Yeah. So if he was truly interested, he'd say, like, Brian, make sure if there's any gravitational waves that you... No, yeah. he actually is so curious about the world. He actually wrote a story called The Last Three Minutes that I'm hoping yeah. to publish someday, mm-hmm. maybe in my next book. Um, he is so genuinely curious. So maybe in cases, and I don't even think of like when i think about yuri milner or i've had avi loeb on my podcast mm. and, and i said look avi you know uh yuri milner why don't just get him to send a spaceship to to Oumuamua rather than proxima centauri mm-hmm. b and he said no he's not interested in doing that we're going to wait and see what ruben says mm. look i think ultimately i would worry if there were like speculative people like people saying i want to prove that global climate change isn't taking place yeah. i want to prove that evolution isn't true you i'm mean sure like there the are brothers well they're called the Koch I'm, brothers dude. yeah I, although they, they've had a renaissance now I know Any, anyway go on but uh <laughs> but um but when you have actual scientists at the helm of these organizations like i think jim or david spurgle now I, I personally don't have these concerns and I don't and I say that as a citizen scientist, right? David is now actually volunteering to lead a this program to look for unidentified aerial phenomena at no benefit to himself for NASA. So I think that we all have a strong incentive. We also want to do things for underrepresented groups, as I said. I, I think these are great things to do and I think they're beneficial for the scientific community, but also for scientists. And I feel like if if that is a priority for the at least for the U.S., I think that actually more of this type of uh, phenomenon will be beneficial. I I don't think uh, Jim Simon is going to pay ten billion dollars to launch a JBST two, but I do feel like there there's nucleation, and then by the way, 
the government can save money when we build CMB stage four if we collaborate as we are in the negotiations with them to uh, leverage our designs, our resources, our personnel, our data analysis pipeline and combine it with them to uh -huh. maybe reduce it from a billion dollar project to, you know, 500 million, say. So hopefully it will end up saving taxpayers, not, not costing them. Yeah, well, exactly. I think, you know, I this is an important discussion to have and i agree with you that yeah. it might be the also the thing to worry about is that or the thing to say is that these people it's a it's a it's also a small drop in the bucket compared to their net wealth but it seems to me if if wealthy people are willing to spend some money on science it's uh it can't hurt and and it yeah, and, and he has said and, he and, and as long as the government as long as the government doesn't give up give up supporting science at the same time well right. look, no I think, and i don't think that they want to right no so. no no they don't want to and i think look i know you have to go uh, Tasha has to go to the bathroom, which is why I'm holding her right now because she's been bugging me. But uh, but I think what I've particularly enjoyed about our discussion, and I hope that the public will take from this, is not just learning a little bit about the science. And I did want to spend some time on your public, you know, your, your popularization of science. Maybe we'll do that another time. But yeah. but is the is the give and take between experimentalists and theorists and talking about these issues that they sort of hopefully can just sit as a fly in the wall and watch the kind of discussions that you and I might have had even if we weren't doing this podcast. So I really enjoy, I really appreciated you taking the time to do this. And I, it's, it's always Me fun too, to talk. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I thought astronomers would spend all our time on telescopes, but I actually spend all my time on telecons, yeah, telecom, which I'm going to yeah. run to now. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.